0: This time around, I spoke to Nick Rose. Nick is a former science teacher who now works as a researcher for Teach First. He runs the excellent Evidence into Practice blog and is the co-author of one of my favourite education books, What Every Teacher Needs to Know About Psychology, which he wrote with David Dedow. Nick is particularly interested in applying psychology to teaching, and as a former A-level psychologist myself, although I chose it more because there were three lads on the course and 15 girls, and someone who is fascinated in how students think and behave, I was particularly interested in talking to him. So, in a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things and more. How did Nick's scientific background and study of paranormal activity affect the early days of his teaching career when confronted by things such as brain gym and learning styles? How did Nick plan not just a sequence of lessons, but an entire course? What did Nick learn from a lesson on half-lives that did not go to plan? And then we dive into some of Nick's favourite areas of research, beginning with something I could happily talk all day about. Misconceptions Is creating cognitive conflict an effective way to overcome misconceptions and indeed can we ever truly overcome them? Should we only teach correct procedures or should we expose students directly to misconceptions as part of the learning process? And then we move on to differentiation looking at the many meanings of the term and some of the associated difficulties in building it into our teaching. Next up is the concept of growth mindset. Is there any scientific validity in it? And crucially, what can we do as classroom teachers to promote a positive way of thinking in our students? We touch upon motivation and why success is such an important factor for learning. And I'll discuss more of this during my takeaway after the end of the interview. And finally, Nick reflects on some of his favourite pieces of research before selecting three cracking websites for us to check out as part of his big three. And there'll be links to all of those on the podcast page. Well, you know what I'm going to say here. I think this is another must listen. Nick drops little pieces of gold dust throughout this interview. Mindset and psychology in general are topics that we've only touched upon in previous episodes and it was both fascinating and enlightening to delve deep into them with an expert such as Nick. Along with my interviews with Daisy Christodoulou, Tom Bennett, Dylan William and the Bjorks, it could well be another one to share with your non-maths colleagues. Just the usual mention of my research page. I've linked to and provided my own practical takeaways to over a 100 papers that have changed my approach to teaching, and I'll be adding the ones Nick discusses in this interview. You can find the page at mrbartonmaths.com forward slash teachers forward slash research. And again, there's a link to that on the podcast notes page. And just the usual plea or begging letter, really, that if you enjoy what you hear, then please give the podcast a quick rating or review on iTunes. I've peaked at number 12 in the global education chart, and I'm currently working on a petition to get all language learning podcasts banned so I can sneak into the top 10. Who needs languages anyway? So, without further ado, let me introduce Nick Rose. Once again, I find myself well and truly out of my depth. I really need to start interviewing some thick people at some stage to make me look good. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay Nick, so even though you are not a maths teacher, we are going to start, as we always do on the podcast, with some maths speed dating questions. So, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Um, Okay, well I think my favourite
1: number is uh, 6.022 times 10 to the 23. Flipping it, you've got me here, go on. Uh, well, I'm, I'm surprised you don't know, Craig, that's Avogadro's number. Uh, that <laughs> expresses the relationship between atomic weight and standard measures of mass. So uh, if you had uh, precisely 12 grams of carbon-12, uh, it would have that many atoms of carbon in it.
0: Flipping heck. And when was the first time you came across this number?
1: Um, well, I was uh, studying science. I can't remember whether it was O-levels or A-levels. Um, but I just mean, remember being absolutely awestruck by the sheer number of atoms in relatively small quantities of matter. Uh, and, you know, I mean, one of the things I'm quite interested in is misconceptions, which we'll talk about later. Um, but, um, you yeah, know, a lot of kids kind of think that kind of. Atoms or particles and cells are roughly the same kind of size, uh, but they they really aren't. You know, uh, atoms really are very, very small indeed. And the fact that you can get quite so many of them uh, into such a small uh, quantity of stuff uh, always struck me as remarkable.
0: Flippin' egg, And what was the name of that number again, Nick?
1: Avogadro's
0: number. Very good. Right. I'll be looking that up. I like it. Excellent start. Well, uh, question number two. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Yeah, I'm going to betray my physics roots again. <laughs>
1: and, uh, I'm probably going to say calculus, I suppose. Um, you know, it's such a, a, a versatile invention in mathematics, allowing you to describe uh, so many kind of aspects of motion and, and, and dynamic change. Um, and I remember, you know, obviously struggling to get my head around integration and all these kinds of things when a student. But there was something remarkably satisfying uh, about being able to kind of run these equations and the fact that the, the kind of historical links i suppose with with kind of isaac newton uh and and obviously not just him alone but uh but this kind sort of new branch of mathematics only a few hundred years old allowing us to uh describe you know sort of you know
0: things in physics that uh, you, you would be very difficult to understand without that mathematics Nice. Fantastic. And the final speed dating question is, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in, in education? Uh, well, I can't imagine that,
1: Craig. I, <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, never say never. I, I began my career, as I'm sure we'll discuss in a bit, uh, as a as a postgraduate researcher in psychology, uh, um, actually looking at uh, people's beliefs in the paranormal. Jeez. And, uh, so I'll explain a bit more about that when we go on to my career. Um, but I suppose I've always kept an interest in why people believe things, uh, particularly believe things that I just think are utterly unbelievable. Whether that's a belief in ghosts or alien abductions or uh, you know whether the Earth is flat or learning styles. You know, I mean, there's all sorts, of <laughs> things, all sorts of things that people believe in, and I've I've always struggled to understand why people believe in things uh and so yeah you know I mean if I could have my fancy uh kind of career I, I guess I'd probably uh you know look at look at that uh sort of aspect of psychology
0: flipping it well I can't hold off any longer can you? you're gonna have to talk me through your career here and get straight onto this paranormal stuff as quickly as possible because that well, is okay, okay, well um
1: as I've kind of already revealed I, I had quite a sort of science and maths kind of uh, school career. I, I, I did uh, physics, pure maths, applied maths and chemistry at uh, A-levels. Uh, I went to university initially to study physics uh, I got about uh, just over a year through uh, a degree in physics um, and, and doing quite well. But over that time, I discovered there were all these other subjects like philosophy and psychology that I'd never heard of at school. Uh, and a bit like a sort of kid in a sweet shop, I suppose, I kind of, you know, uh, sort of looked around at kind of uh, other areas of uh, science that I might kind of potentially uh, sort of have a go at, and uh, psychology to me was always the kind of wild west of science. I mean, <laughs> physics and chemistry were the kind of like the civilized east. Uh, this was the kind of like the manifest destiny, trying to kind of unpick something as complicated as the human mind. Uh, and, and the human brain, and I became increasingly fascinated in that. Um, transferred to to start again essentially, so I managed to get kind of best part of five years at university, which, which was obviously a byproduct. Um, uh, studying psychology, and uh, as part of that, I did a whole swathe of things from things like physiology and pharmacology and looking at brain and behavioral sciences, but also looking at uh, philosophy and, and kind of introduction to philosophical problems and all sorts of other kind of areas. So um, I think when I uh, left university, uh, initially, I wanted to go uh, into clinical psychology. I'd become very interested in um, uh, the sort of you know, the haunted brain, essentially, the, the, the kind of the, uh, the, the things that can go wrong with our neurology. Um, uh, and trying to sort of get a better understanding of that. Um, I ended up shadowing uh, a clinical psychologist while working as an IT technician uh, in, a, in a sort of uh, a regional rehabilitation unit. Um, and uh, looking at actually um, the kinds of things that we were using in terms of cognitive retraining packages. So people probably know things like brain training uh, from the, uh, the funny little games that are supposed to help you uh, help your memory. Um, well, some of them had origins a lot longer ago when um, we're being used for cognitive rehabilitation uh, with pitifully little evidence that it actually helped people <laughs> recovering from a stroke or a head injury um, get better at anything except the brain training games. Um, and in fact, my first, uh, my first conference paper was actually talking about better ways to try and make use of computers, uh, in neuro rehabilitation. So, for instance, very simple things like if you've lost the use of your right hand, uh, because of a stroke, um, trying to relearn handwriting with your left hand is extremely frustrating and difficult. However, at that stage, you know, I mean, not everybody was particularly a fan with using word processors or spreadsheets and all these kinds of things. Um, So whether people could use the the kind of the communication technology um, uh, and the kind of the uh, uh, things like word processors to write letters to the bank and all these kinds of things um, uh, as they were recovering from uh, sort of head head injuries and strokes. Um, I I suppose eventually I got a little of disenchanted with clinical psychology because actually at that stage uh to become a clinical psychologist you needed a phd anyway and then you kind of retrained as a a clinical psychologist um but also i mean a great amount of work was really just kind of entry and exit assessments and sometimes you didn't even get to do the the exit assessment (laughs) just doing batteries of tests um and yeah, do you know what? I just, I kind of, I wasn't convinced necessarily that that was the, the career for me. And then I spotted an advert in the Guardian for a parapsychologist, uh, working with somebody I'd, I'd heard of, um, uh, and I'd read, uh, some of their, their work before, um, Dr. Susan Blackmore, now Professor Susan Blackmore, now retired, um, who was a, a very famous skeptical psychologist. Uh, who had done all sorts of uh, fantastic, interesting work looking at near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, people's uh, kind of experiences of things like ESP, extrasensory uh, perception, things like telepathy, um, and uh, but also looking at what was the, uh, uh, the, the, the kind of the cognitive biases that may cause people to believe in such things, even if they aren't true. Uh, so looking at people's um, um, kind of probability judgments and things like that uh, and their beliefs in the paranormal. Yeah, um, I so you know. I did the academic equivalent of running off to join the circus, uh, <laughs> and, uh, kind of, you know, quit a relatively kind of serious proposition of potentially trying to go into something something sensible like clinical psychology um, and um, ended up um, having five years, a uh, fantastic experience working with uh, so. Well, I think if I've got any qualities as, uh, uh, you know, academic abilities or, or as a researcher, uh, that she, she, you know, all, all of the to blame goes on her, I think. Um, really just a, a fantastic experience. I mean, you know, uh, investigating people's experiences of, uh, of, of ghosts. I did uh, ghost busting. Uh, so <laughs> you're going down and uh, speaking to people who had experience of ghosts um, uh, around Bristol. Uh, we tested... Uh, to see whether or not at the boundary between memory and false memory whether people were were more likely to experience uh, uh, psychic phenomenon so uh, whether or not for instance they were able to be more clairvoyant uh, when they weren't certain about whether their memory was real or a false memory um, yeah you I know, just like I could go on for ages uh, just a, a fantastic uh, opportunity to really just delve into so many different areas of psychology um, and, um, yeah, it's part of actually a, a, a relatively much more serious kind of research project uh, funded by the Parrot Warwick, uh, where we were looking at, for instance, things like the role of parasomnias, in people's supernatural experiences. Um, So uh, to give an example, um, some people will have an experience uh, that's called uh, sleep paralysis, often when you're going to sleep or just as you're waking up. Normally, what happens is your brain paralyzes the body, so you don't act out your dreams. But the stages of this don't always happen in the right order. So people can sometimes have the experience of waking up or feeling like they're awake and uh, not being able to move, and sometimes accompanied by quite terrifying hallucinations. Um, and internationally, you find this phenomenon all over the place. In Vietnam, it's called the Grey Ghost. In Newfoundland, it's called Old Hag. Um, but it was also connected to modern phenomena. So alien abductions, for instance, uh, often had a very similar kind of, uh, kind of you know, uh, story to them. Same sort of thing with a person waking up unable to move and having these, these hallucinations.
0: Flipping heck, Nick. And w- w- what caused you to leave this life behind? That sounds absolutely oh, unbelievable. Oh, I've out of money. <laughs> uh, yeah. the, the problem with being a sceptical parapsychologist,
1: I suppose, I'm, I'm massively generalizing. um I suppose is because, you know, if you're... Um, yeah, you know, for, for, for for I suppose for people who really believe in things like life after death and ESP, there are grants, grants and funding bodies that uh, uh, sort of do do sort of you know uh, assist that kind of research. But you can imagine it's 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 quite fringe compared to the rest of psychology. Yes, and of course I was a sceptical parapsychologist, <laughs> which means that I was kind of. Yeah, I, I don't know. I wasn't respectable enough for mainstream psychology, but too sceptical for, for parapsychology. I suppose. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, eventually the Periwari uh, project, which was uh, funded for five years uh, very generously, uh, came to an end. Uh, and uh, like a lot of uh, kind of postgraduate researchers, will know if they're listening to this you know you, you you eventually do run out of money um so um essentially been, I mean I looked around and one of the things that I had really enjoyed uh, working at the University of West England uh, was doing some of the teaching so I did uh, tutorials helping third year undergraduates with their projects uh, and kind of looking at their essays to sort of teaching modules on the psychology of consciousness uh, yeah, and and parapsychology and all sorts of other areas um and I suppose uh, yeah I suppose at any sea change in my life i've always kind of used the wisdom of my friends as a, a good guide i kind of explained to them i was thinking of going into teaching and i wasn't really quite sure what the response would be um but what was quite surprising is they all kind of turned around and I said yeah that sounds brilliant you'd be excellent at that so i thought well okay I'll, I'll give it a punt um and at the time they were offering lots of bursaries and assistance for people coming in to teach science uh, and obviously because i've done a, a you know, first year of a degree in physics uh, I kind of qualified for kind of bursaries to help me through uh, kind of re-qualifying as a as a science teacher. So uh, up to beginning in about 2002, I think, um, uh, I started training as a teacher at Goldsmiths College um, and uh, ended up uh, becoming a science teacher.
0: Nice. And then how long did you do that for, Nick?
1: Well, you know, they, they very helpfully had, uh, sort of, you know, teacher repayment schemes back then. So I suppose initially, um, I played around with teaching psychology and perhaps moving in towards more sort of teaching A level. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it was quite nice seeing my student lane getting paid. <laughs> yes. i making myself sound really flippant. I, I probably love teaching science. I mean, and I, I, you know, science, uh, you know, not just psychology, but, you know, physics, chemistry and biology. Uh, or are all areas that I can get deeply sort of fascinated and passionate about. Um, but eventually I sort of gravitated initially, uh, sort of mo- you know, moving school, teaching a bit of psychology, teaching a bit of science. Um, but eventually sort of gravitated more and more towards, uh, teaching psychology. Um, and then I started blogging, uh, about kind of the relationship between uh psychological research and educational research uh and what we might be able to kind of apply usefully within the classroom uh so that's the evidence into practice blog uh that i I sort of you know in infrequently maintain uh, (laughs) the most honest description um but i yeah there was quite a nice kind of reception to it. I mean, not everyone agreed with everything I said, and I wouldn't expect that. But I think um, it, it kind of, I don't know, I think a lot of people quite liked the fact that I summarised and reviewed bits of research and tried to kind of draw out what the implications might be, and in some cases, what how they might be applied, um, and really just asking questions about some of the things that I had long believed uh from my my background being a teacher you know um i think quite early on my skepticism uh from being a skeptical parapsychologist got kind of activated (laughs) education i sometimes make the joke and it's probably again a bit unfair that coming from parapsychology which is all about kind of ghosts and telepathy and alien abductions i kind of expected to leave all the pseudoscience behind (laughs) (laughs) education but i mean really early on uh you know within my first term i think it was as an nqt i got sent on a brain gym course um, because you know my my uh, uh sort of mentor at the time kind of really genuinely believed that it helped kids learn uh when i reacted with skepticism at the idea that water being held to the roof of your mouth would flow through to your brain or uh, that your the left and right hemispheres of the brain needed joining up i mean yeah that's what the corpus callosum is for um expressing skepticism about some of these ideas i got sent off on a course uh, to go and learn more about it, which I, I can honestly say uh, is my standing example of the backfire effect. Uh, so sort of coming back, you know, sort of with more entrenched views, that this was this was quite clearly pseudoscientific. Uh, and of course, you know, later, uh, Ben Goldacre, writing uh, Bad Science, talked about uh, the kind of the, the paucity of evidence. Yes. Uh, supporting brain gym as a, a technique to be used in the classroom. But uh, of course, I came in and all the national strategies were kind of like being published at that time. And one of the, the big ones was looking at uh, learning styles. Yes. The idea of visual auditory and kinesthetic learners. Uh, and again, you know, look, even with a bit of background in psychology, looking at the questionnaires that we use to assess. Uh, your learning preference or your learning style—you uh, know—they they just genuinely had no psychometric validity. Uh, and you know, again, it was just a bit surprising. Right? It's like, well, hang on a minute, this can't be, this can't be cutting edge in education. But I mean, obviously, at the time, uh, you know, it was—it seemed very plausible. It's very intuitively plausible to many people. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, you know, uh, I started kind of just asking questions about what I've been, you know. What the received wisdom was saying about some of the techniques I should use in the classroom.
0: And do you remember, because this would have been fairly early on in your career, how did you, did you simply kind of refuse to buy into it? Let's take learning styles, for example, because I just remember when I was in NQT, it was all the rage as well. And we, the first lesson kids had to fill out the questionnaires and then we had to plan for our visual learners. Our kinesthetic learners write it down in our lesson plan and show how we're accommodating to their needs. What What was your response, Nick, as someone who was not just a skeptic, but kind of had had considered this area before and and knew that there was very little evidence for it. How, How did you actually react? Yeah, I mean,
1: obviously I argued uh and i think right across my career i've always been slightly surprised i haven't been sacked (laughs) Uh, i I think any of my colleagues that listen to this podcast will recognize me as the kind of the person who puts their hand up at at the back of an inset day uh, and asks you know awkward questions of the guest speaker or the head teacher or whoever is making kind of empirical claims um I, I guess to a certain extent, um, uh, you know, I hope I always did it, um, you know, uh, sort of reasonably and, and responsibly and professionally. But I, I think, you know, it's sometimes very difficult. It, teaching can be an extremely hierarchical environment. And I yes. think I was very lucky, uh, in that the head teachers, I was joking about being mm-hmm. worried about being sacked <laughs> because actually the, the, the head teachers and the senior teachers I've worked with over my career, um, yeah, you know, actually, they, they wanted to be part of a profession that had that kind of criticality that didn't just take received wisdom and just like try and blindly put it into practice. Um, but, but I, I think genuinely. Uh, most of the time, probably some of the time, actually, they, they probably, yeah, would have preferred i just kind of kept it till another time. Or, <laughs> and, and, yeah, over the years, I did kind of start to learn when I should probably talk to them privately and when I should publicly kind of, you know, say things. But, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think part, part of the the spirit of the academy is being able to challenge things uh and to be able to you know discuss uh things about evidence and practice um you know rather than just you know just go along with things because you're told to and i won't say it was easy i mean you know yes of course you know when i had uh observations and things particularly when i was very early in my career you know i would sit there and i'd think how on earth am i going to do this kinesthetically (laughs) but you, there are all sorts of fudges. You know, people would say, well, hang on a minute. If they're drawing a diagram, you know, is that, is that kinesthetic? <laughs> sure. And it's like, well, none of this really makes sense. I mean, reading is both visual and auditory. Yes. And if they're writing, then they're moving their hands. So <laughs> if I get them to do some reading and some writing, I've fulfilled all three of those learning styles. Nice.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. And but, how, long, how long did you teach for, Nick? And what, what happened after that?
1: Uh, well, I, I left teaching in January of 2016. Uh, partly, uh, it's David Dydo's fault. He approached me and kind of suggested uh, getting together to write a book. Uh, you know, uh, what every teacher needs to know about psychology. Um, and I realised, I mean, and, and again, uh, teaching colleagues will recognise, you know, if you're if you're working as a full time teacher trying to write a book somehow alongside that, is, it seems like an impossible prospect. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I've been teaching uh, from, you know, 2003 as qualified teacher, So, I mean, that's what, uh, 12 years, roughly. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that I'd take a, a short sabbatical, write a book, uh, and then kind of think about the future at some other time. Uh, you can probably tell I, I really just genuinely have never had a career plan. Uh, you know, <laughs> so. But during this sabbatical, uh, writing the writing the book, which was great fun. It was it was great to just have an opportunity to go back, uh, you know, looking at some of the research that I perhaps talked about sort of you know previously, but also being able to sort of dig around, have a look uh, at what was out there. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it was uh, Twitter found me a job. Uh, Frankly, uh, I saw a, a tweet from Harry Fletcher Wood, uh, basically uh, paraphrasing, "Come and work for me at uh, Teach First in our research department." And um, yeah, that that looked really interesting. Um, so uh, I, I stuck in an application to Teach First, and uh, I've been working there as a, a researcher um, since what March two thousand
0: and sixteen. Flipping, I can. And, yeah. and last last question before we get on to the uh, looking at actual uh, specific uh, teaching: do, do, do you miss the teaching, Nick, or what do you miss and what don't you miss? Yeah, I, I think
1: like most teachers who have moved out of the profession. Uh you definitely don't miss the marking. <laughs> Correct, yeah. And you know, there's something that, there's something remarkable about um uh, you know, being able to take holiday when, when you feel like it and yep. uh being able to go to the loo. <laughs> uh things like you know, occasionally working from home, you know, I mean there's there's all sorts of uh friendly luxury like evenings and weekends and these sorts of things. Uh <laughs> which, you know, frankly still feels a little bit dishonest um yeah you know i mean yes i, I still do miss uh i miss the, the teaching uh you know and i think again many many colleagues uh that i've spoken to who have kind of made a transition out of teaching often say the same thing you know actually being in the class uh talking to the kids uh you know working with them to develop their uh their, their love of uh the subject that you teach uh, and really seeing that that kind of that progress, the light bulbs, the the, the kind of the, the growing motivation uh, over time, uh, you know that, that there is something deeply rewarding about that. Um, yeah, I mean, you yeah, know, there are there are it's a mixed bag, I suppose. I'd never say never. Uh, I yeah, I, I'm definitely somebody who could be enticed back into the classroom at some some later stage. But I'm enjoying enjoying working as a researcher again. It's kind of like a, a return, uh, kind of back twenty like twenty odd years ago. Uh, but this time kind of, you know, in the, in the domain of education rather than uh, ghosts and alien abduction.
0: <laughs> Super fantastic. Uh, well, this is the part of the show, Nick, where I, when I interview a maths teacher, I get them to describe um, how they how they put a lesson together or a sequence of lessons. And I interviewed Chris Bolton recently and he spoke for two hours, 20 minutes about <laughs> planning a lesson. So we'll try and keep it a, a little bit briefer than that. But I wonder if you could just, just talk us through what, what would your planning process uh, be, Nick? What would be the kind of key things that you you would consider? Or when you were putting a lesson together.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to sound incredibly flippant now, and I will say that <laughs> over the course of most of my career, I found lesson plans easiest to fill in after I've taught the lesson. Right. And I think part of that is because sometimes the uh, the format or the structure of the lesson plan. Uh, kind of, you know, becomes a, a slightly bureaucratic exercise rather than a genuine plan. So I will say that, you know, uh, and that is a bit flippant. Certainly when I was starting out, I needed to really kind of sketch out what what I was going to do. Sure. Actually, you know, within a lesson and try and think about the timings and things. But I, I think as you, be, you become more experienced at teaching, particularly once you've taught something several times before, you start looking longer and longer ahead in terms of the sequences of what it is that you're trying to do um and my ideas about about planning sequences of learning have also changed so uh you know teaching psychology i might try and group together uh sort of you know a particular sort of concept and now uh i you know towards the the end of my teaching i deliberately try and split these things up so we return to them so, I think the starting point of planning is curriculum, really. And really, uh, you know, one of the great joys about being a head of department um, and being able to kind of, uh, you know, plan your own curriculum uh, was really being able to take that back to kind of first principles. Um, uh, sort of, you know, again, reasonably late to my career. Uh, my school, uh, sort of agreed to pick up a, a GCSE in psychology. And I'd never taught that before. It was a very, very new course. There was like one, one past paper, I think, or at least a <laughs> couple of sample papers. And that was a particular challenge. Um, thinking about the, uh, you know, how will this be assessed? Um, which was obviously very difficult. Um, and obviously there was limited range of materials available. Whilst there was tons for A-level psychology, a new GCSE in psychology, uh, you know, genuinely had very little resource online. So, uh, you know, it really was kind of, you know, you get the, uh, you've got the specification that kind of tells you eventually what the kind of final assessment is going to be, but actually really thinking about what are the building blocks in terms of the, the concepts, uh, the key studies, the key ideas that, and theories, and the progression of those over time. Uh, that will help students to to really understand the the the, the not just the uh, components of the uh, the topic, but also the evolution uh, of psychology as a discipline. Um, and yeah, you know, there are lots of lots of ways of doing that. I suppose for me, uh, pitching it around, what are the kind of the core ideas that. Uh, you want to come back to over time uh, so that you have multiple opportunities to revisit important concepts this is true probably in science teaching I'd I'd guess in math teaching as well to be honest that there are some things that uh, are tricky a bit abstract and that you want to be able to come back to more than once Um, and so you know and then from kind of a broad Kind of brush of the curriculum what what what's the kind of the the, the sequence of learning over a uh, long period of time like two years then sort of bringing it down and starting to think okay well you know if i want them to get to this point at the end of two years what what are the kind of what's a, a plausible ordering of the kind of the key uh, you know studies theories facts that we need to encounter and, and consolidate uh for them to be able to achieve these things at the end um you know, and and it's an area I think i would never really felt uh, kind of necessarily trained for, is the honest truth. It requires such a, a deep understanding of your subject to be able to pick out not just what the core ideas are, but also try and kind of think in a plausible Journey, uh, you know, where how do you sequence these things so they kind of build and accumulate upon each other? And I guess certainly in maths planning, you've got it's a very cumulative subject
0: in that degree. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's it's interesting you say that, Nick, and this this is something that I've I've long thought about, and I'd be interested in your take on this. Because um, you've had quite a unique experience there, of essentially putting together the order of a, of a new course. But every single year, and I, I assume it's similar in science teaching, it certainly is in maths. Teachers tend to spend most of summer term, once year 11s have gone, rewriting the schemes of work. And it's whenever you get gain time, I'm rewriting my year seven scheme of work. I'm rewriting my year nine, changing the order, tweaking the assessments and so on. Based on kind of your experience and also what you've read, would you argue in favor of a kind of centralized scheme of work that has a kind of prescribed order that every school follows, perhaps for science GCSE or, or something that's kind of research based, that's populated with all the kind of best materials and so on, instead of this almost kind of school lottery where teachers are kind of putting together orders of schemes of work based on, you know, kind of their their intuition about how things should be taught?
1: I will say that right back at the beginning of my career, I thought it was frankly rather bizarre that I had to plan lessons. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was, the, you know, I was the least qualified and least knowledgeable yes. person about this. Uh, you know, why on earth was I, I planning lessons or sequences of work? Um, I was like, I mean, in some schools there there was at least a framework, some sort of model to buy into, but it's not always the case. Yeah, and certainly in in, in kind of I, I have had experience of just really just kind of, you know, being at a bit of a loss uh, and, and kind of sort of thinking, well, what do I teach next lesson? Um, so, I mean, compared to giving complete novices, uh, you know, that ult- ultimate responsibility of stitching together, uh, you know, a whole sequence of learning uh, for, for students, uh, that you know in a subject that they may know academically but they won't necessarily know how to teach it yes they won't necessarily know which bits the kids are going to get really stuck on or how kids think about things that give rise to certain misconceptions um, so you know so, some pooling of wisdom uh, around kind of sequences of learning I, I think I would certainly say was a, a really uh, positive thing uh, it would seem quite a natural thing you know I, I would have expected as a uh, a new teacher coming into the profession but you know yeah I might tweak things around the edges and I, I, I'd certainly have bright sparky new ideas that I want to try out perhaps but I mean certainly the, the kind of foundations would be laid out for me um, uh, and you know I mean to, it, it varies by school to school and you know I, I don't know how much time teachers really get uh, an opportunity to think about what they're teaching at the level of curriculum rather than necessarily sort of getting through modules um you know i I, th- I think some of the, the structural things in education sometimes work at work against you know the, that kind of development um but you know I don't know I, mean, I suppose there's a natural tension I mean I suppose like most teachers I'm quite individualist and quite you know uh, opinionated um, <laughs> and, and so <laughs> somebody sitting there saying right yeah lesson one you're going to teach this lesson two, you're going to teach that. Um, you know there would be part of me I suppose there'd be sort of hackles up and a little bit of rebellion but actually I think to to a certain extent there needs to be some sort of accommodation between the two I mean I I think all teachers should have an opportunity perhaps at a department level or a faculty level to to kind of feed into uh, what that sequence might be if there was really good solid science and, and, and certainly there's been probably far more of this looking in maths I think than in most other subjects uh certainly you know thinking about kind of science and definitely like teaching psychology uh i think you'd be very hard pressed to say there was a very good research or evidence-based sequence that, yes. that you know plausibly you should use because it's got uh, a comparison with other uh other other ways of teaching it or other sequences that you could use um I think for most teachers they're i mean and most subjects they're 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 pretty much wild west territory <laughs> uh, and you know teachers are constantly having to invent things over and over again um that actually Collegiately, we, yeah, you know, certainly, sort of collaboratively as a, as a faculty or as a department, we could, we could help each other out a great deal. I suppose, you know, depending on the scale, really, um, you know, uh, if, if you're in a trust or a mass or something like that, you know, I mean, that collaboration could get quite big. Uh, and I don't know, I mean, I can see great positives on that. You know, uh, you know, the bit that you're contributing to is going to be a lot more manageable if you're one part of a group of 20 teachers working together to refine and build a, a kind of sequence of learning um, that we're all going to use to kind of like uh, collectively and uh, to, together. Um, and I can see real advantages to that. Um, I guess, to a certain extent, the, the arguments against it are, I suppose, that we don't really have a good evidence based, a good research based, and we're not really in a position to evaluate it terribly well. Uh, you know, how do you know yours is the best sequence? Well, you'd, you'd have to compare it in quite a sophisticated way to be able to make that kind of comparative judgment. Um, and, and frankly, we're, we're just not in that position yet
0: yeah no you're right as i say it's just it's just frustrating the amount of time that gets spent rewriting these flipping schemes of work it does my head in but but anyway um can i ask you as well just just before we get on to the bad times when we talk about lessons that have got gone wrong for you nick i wonder if you could just tell me were there any kind of key features that you would always look to include in your lessons yeah i mean i i guess both in science and
1: psychology uh you know there, there's a language barrier uh and and a lot of the abstract ideas require uh, a, quite a nuanced understanding of words that often have another meaning in everyday language. Uh, so one of the key things I've probably spent quite a lot of time thinking about would be the, the the key vocabulary that needs to be built up over time to support the understanding of the, the concepts and explanations uh, that I want students to, to, to encounter. Uh, I think another thing, uh, that increasingly I tried to build in m- more of and 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 better I hope uh, was kind of activating prior knowledge and, and giving a bit of opportunity to retrieve and review uh, things that we've done in previous lessons and not just a, like the last lesson but perhaps in the previous term or even the previous year. Um, so kind of using like just pr- really low stakes kind of pop quiz type things um to uh kind of activate the, the the kind of the knowledge that might might be used in the rest of that lesson uh or at least to sort of have an opportunity to review something we had not had to look at for for a long time
0: and can um, i just ask nick sorry to interrupt would that be done in a systematic way would you kind of have a list of all the concepts and and skills that you've covered and essentially kind of tick them off every time you've reviewed them and make sure you never go a certain amount of time without reviewing one or would it would it kind of be done on a, on a more kind of ad hoc basis
1: yeah, I mean, I th- to be honest, the first time coming through, I mean, when I was writing like the GCC psychology that I was teaching, uh, I think a lot of it was ad hoc, if not post hoc. Uh, so... <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, First time teaching through anything, you you learn an awful lot yes. about the bits the kids understood and the bits that they don't, uh, and that's as true even if you're quite an experienced teacher teaching a new topic or a new new uh, subject or a new specification, uh, or you're teaching it to a slightly different age group, uh, or or even from one year to the next. You, know, you think things can surprise you. Um, however, no, I mean I, I think over time uh, I, I got a bit better at being systematic. Certainly in terms of uh, you know uh, I know knowledge organisers are all the, the rage now. But I used to have vocabulary sheets and, and, and kind of glossary uh, kind of information of, of like key terms uh, that students needed to know. Uh, and so I would quiz them on that. Uh, and I'd do it on roughly sort of more or less a rotational basis, really. So, um, you know, uh, obviously, when you're covering module one, uh, you, you'd kind of like quiz them about the vocabulary in module one. When you're doing module two, uh, I would probably do, you know, i don't know i'm sort of strict proportions but sort of yeah you know, 60 70 percent of module two and then 30 40 percent of module one and then it would kind of just like accumulate over time um i don't know a perfect recipe for it i mean you know there's the the learning scientists are looking at uh, and the eef has recently been looking at you know what's a what's a good uh you know retrieval interval to yes. leave between uh kind of returning to particular uh key ideas um in the meantime i think teachers you know quite naturally in the absence of good quality sort of evidence to inform what you might do uh, use a mixture of professional experience
0: and uh, you know uh, a bit of experimentation to to kind of like see what happens with that. Can, can I ask on that one Nick? because well, I'm a bit obsessed with this kind of optimal spacing schedule and I was looking off to interview um, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork and it was very interesting to me that seeing as they've done so much work into this that they didn't have an answer to kind of the optimal spacing schedule they the explained how it depended on the retrieval interval and all this kind of thing but what why is there not why is there not a simple formula for when you want to test something that kind of the time in the future that you want to test something how many times you want to test retrieval that you can essentially just plug in and it'll say right do it for the first time three weeks from now then five weeks from now and so on what what's the complications
1: yeah i mean you know uh, god the complications is the, the 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 whole of Uh, you know, the the whole of, uh, you know, curriculum and, and human knowledge. Um, some ideas are easier to, to hang on to than others. Uh, so, you know, when I, certainly when I used to teach psychology, uh, you know, there were some topics. That were quite concrete that that kids could immediately kind of pick up and get Uh, and to be honest you know i probably wouldn't need to uh, give them as much practice going back to those um, because they were quite intuitively straightforward Um, others were kind of very highly abstract easy to get mixed up and confused so an example of that was something like proactive and retroactive interference in memory you know this was one i i kind of from from professional experience i could see Kids will often get mixed up and even when they've got it resolved in their head, you ask them about it, you know, the next lesson and it's kind of fallen apart again. So certainly when I was planning it, I would kind of look at From my experience of teaching similar topics at A-level and kind of like my knowledge of psychology, even the things that I knew that I found quite difficult to get my head around when I first encountered them, um, using using that pedagogical content knowledge. And I don't think we've got that mapped to the degree where we could honestly say, you know, what the interval should be. But on a very simple level, there are going to be some very complex abstract ideas that we're going to find very hard to learn and retain. And there are going to be some fairly intuitively, almost commonsensical ideas, that actually just a couple of exposures would probably get that pretty, pretty consolidated for the majority of students. But students are going to vary as well. I mean, yes. you know, it's true that we, we attend more to some things than to others. Uh, we also uh, have different prior experiences that we may be trying to link new information to. You know, even if we're in the same school, we were in the same, Year seven said we may have gone to different primary schools or we may have different support at home and all sorts of other things. Um, so how we attach new information to the information that's already there, uh, is going to be, is always going to be a bit unique. You know, it's always, now we can make broad general claims and this is like the, sort of the difference between nomothetic approaches and ideographic. What, what learning theories give us or, of, of the Ilk of, um, uh, Robin, uh, uh, is a is a general nomothetic approach, general principles that are worthwhile considering and trying to build into our practice. So the idea that having a bit of space between opportunities to try and retrieve information helps you build up your memory for that information, and you can use that in future to to learn new information, uh, is a general truth we know from the sort of cognitive science, from laboratory studies and classroom studies as well. Um, on the other hand, you know what that Pathway, what that route looks like through A level psychology or GCSE maths or uh, you know a, a drama lesson or uh, an English literature lesson or, or whatever whatever else it might be, is going to be very sensitive to the domain, and very sensitive to the structure of it. Again, not, I'd be happy to make bold predictions, broad predictions, that more abstract, more complex uh, sort of uh, ideas that often are connected with misconceptions will probably need revisiting more frequently uh, than those things that seem pretty commonsensical. Um, But again, you know, part of that you're going to have to assess as well. Uh, So, you know, if you, let's say, uh, let's say that some uh, sort of impossible, cognitive scientists because they never would say this (laughs) but let's say they said right okay you want to leave it a three-week gap and then an eight-week gap and then a 12-week gap and then they'll know it forever uh you know that's that's clearly going to get falsified very quickly um you know because it's going to depend a great deal on the kid on material and you know all the kind of the complexities that, that kind of make up human memory so what teachers need to do is be be you know that is why assessment for learning is so important. You know, actually being able to assess, uh, you know, if you you try it after three weeks and 100% of them get it absolutely right first time through, uh, then, you know, well, it's probably worth checking at some point in the future to see if that was a one off fluke. But the fact that all of them have got it, that that would be very impressive. On the other hand, if after three weeks, none of them get it. And after five weeks, still none of them have got it. You you, you can start building on further iterations, I think, in your own mind about how often you're going to have to return to that to get that really consistent um, so that the kids aren't going to panic about it uh, if they've got an exam in it. They'll, they'll, they'll really know it and they'll know that they know it.
0: Got it. Fantastic. Well, before we before we dive even deeper into, into the research, so I've got tons of questions to ask you on this, Nick. I wonder if I can just take you back to a, a dark time in your career where perhaps you taught a lesson that, that went badly. And what I'm particularly interested in is, is why did it go badly and, and what did you learn from it? Yeah,
1: I mean, the difficulty here is trying to kind of filter out all of the examples. I mean, <laughs> it, it's very hard to actually say when... <clears throat> It's very difficult to know when a, a lesson has gone really well. And, yes. and I suppose part of that comes down to your definition of what what does a lesson going well look like? The, the difference, the difficulty is the difference between learning and performance. You know, I mean, you know, you can have the kids... Seemingly very engaged in what they're doing. Uh, yeah, the behavior isn't really an issue. They seem quite enthusiastic with it. Um, but these aren't necessarily very good proxies for how much is actually going on inside their heads. It might be that they're doing uh, a great deal of activity, but not necessarily the right kind of activity uh, to to actually genuinely get uh, a good sort of grasp of the subject that you're teaching them. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, you, th- th- you can usually tell when things have gone really badly. And obviously, I've had lots of those kind of experiences uh, as a science teacher trying to kind of do practical work uh, with groups that, you know, where, we, you know, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, either the, the, the behavior or the kind of the organization either at your end or uh, in terms of the kids familiarity with the equipment and all sorts of other things can just go can go horrendously wrong. Um, you know, th- yeah, I think every teacher has the, the kind of nightmares. I think sometimes when we talk about um, things that we might want to try out in the classroom, I think it's quite natural to sometimes think back to those kind of nightmare classes and think I couldn't possibly try and do this with them. They'd just go crazy off the wall. Uh, so an example of that, I I'm t- trying to do uh, uh, half-life simulations with uh, a very tough year 10 group. Uh, so it's a physics module looking uh, using dice to model uh, kind of the, 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 yeah, the decay of a half-life. So you start off with uh, a fairly large number of dice, perhaps 60 or something like that. And every time it rolls a six, you take it away and you plot the remaining on a graph. And what you should get is a nice kind of sort of negative exponential curve, sort of eventually kind of, sort of disappearing on a long line. Nice. Uh, of course, what I got was dice all over the room, scraps <laughs> of paper. I think one one student just basically freehand drew a bit of a curve uh, on a bit of graph paper, uh, aping what I put up at the end uh, as a as a kind of like a model example of how you. Think of it. <laughs> Um, you know, and the behavior with that class just wasn't, wasn't there. Uh, you know, and there were lots of reasons for that. You know, I was a very inexperienced teacher. Uh, they were a very new class. They hadn't had a chance really to, to get to know me or for me to really, to get to know them. I think a lot of people say, you know, for instance, that, you know, behavior depends on relationships, but relationships genuinely take quite a long time to, to, to develop. And it can say, you know, uh, certainly by the end of your, kind of you know first term perhaps some of the kids will start to give you a break and certainly after the end of your first year you become a bit of more of a known quantity um it's interesting there's a the thing in psychology called the mere exposure effect you know uh everyone thinks that familiarity breeds contempt but actually the evidence suggests the opposite uh that we we become very very uh we prefer and and, and like things that become more familiar uh and i think certainly you know in terms of when you're a teacher and you're kind of developing that relationship with the class, uh, you you benefit from mere exposure. It's really difficult, even, uh, and and there's kind of wider evidence on this. I mean, even very experienced teachers going into a new school, for instance, you know, often have to work very, very hard to kind of get through those, that first kind of period where they're trying to rebuild something of their reputation that preceded them uh, in their old school. Because once you've been in school for a while, of course, the kids uh, all know about you from, from from their siblings and from peers who have been in your lessons. Uh, and you become you know a, a you know, part of the furniture within the school the kids just assume you live there and live there. Um, <laughs> can,
0: can i can i just ask on that nick as well is there any evidence at all of some kind of honeymoon effect because i i often think that you tend to get a break for about the first week whilst kind of kids are weighing you up and then it can start to kind of go downhill uh, rapidly after that before it picks up around about after christmas once kids realize you're going to be staying at that school and as you say they get familiar with you is there anything in that that kids kind of weigh you up for the first week or so yeah i mean um
1: i don't know i've not seen anything systematic on that but i mean i'm certainly certainly experienced for things um i guess social norms take time to develop uh and you know what the what the uh social norms are for the behavior of students in your class is something that the kids are figuring out uh early on while you're there as the teacher um so you know when they first arrive in your classroom they have no idea what the social norms are supposed to be in that classroom there's the, maybe the school norms yes. but unless they're very very strong uh, and, and fairly similar across classrooms they won't necessarily import any of those norms uh into your classroom or at least not not uh, you know not enough of them i would say um but anyway yeah you know, so they, they come into your classroom they don't really know you uh and probably during that first week uh, everyone's kind of looking at everyone else, working out what the social norms are, what, what's, what's appropriate and inappropriate behaviour in this classroom compared to the one across the, the corridor and you know, uh, you know, the other teachers that, that I've interacted with within this school. Uh, and as the students are looking at each other and forming a mental model of what's appropriate behaviour in your classroom, um, you know, uh, and particularly, I mean, you know, uh, you know, across the whole of education, but particularly, I suppose, in that kind of adolescent years of uh, secondary school, uh, there's a very strong impulse to then test the boundaries of those social. <laughs> um, so I guess that what you call a honeymoon period is actually really the kind of, uh, the, the kids probably forming a mental model about what is appropriate and inappropriate behavior in your classroom based on what they can get away with.
0: Got it. Fantastic. And last question before we move on to research, Nick. With that um, that half life lesson, what what would you do differently now?
1: Um, well, I've done, I've done similar activities in the past, and I think in terms of a, a, a kind of like a model to help. Kids understand the the kind of the, the, the invisible and the abstract and the unfamiliar. Uh, there's some evidence that uh, concrete examples, you like like using dice to model these things, uh, are very easy to learn, um, but they don't necessarily generalise very well. Uh, on the other hand, the more abstract, the mathematical uh, explanation, you know, the description uh, of a half-life decay, uh, is harder to get your head round. But once you've got it, you can uh, typically transfer it a little bit more. Uh, to, to kind of you know, unfamiliar examples. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of a sequence of learning, I probably wouldn't have launched in with uh, just the concrete example and expect them to kind of see the link between the abstract and the, the, the concrete. Uh, I Probably do a bit of interleaving between the sort of an abstract version uh, and a concrete version, eventually fading out the concrete version of it so that hopefully they're left uh, being able to apply the abstract version
0: of that got it super okay nick so now i want to turn our attention to educational research and just for a bit of background for you here i am an absolute novice when it comes to this but i'm kind of an obsessed novice and since since discovering the kind of wonders of educational research and reading a load of books on it including your excellent what every teacher needs to know about psychology book I'm, I'm getting a bit carried away with it, but there's a few areas I've just got some questions in and I'm hoping that you can help me get to the bottom of it. So the first area is misconceptions and this is, this is probably the big one for me because I have my diagnostic questions website and I'm confronting misconceptions and looking at data on misconceptions every single day. So I want to know how to resolve them. And one thing I've come across that seems to be quite heavily covered in, in the educational research literature is cognitive conflict. So, can you just tell us what well, what's your views on on cognitive conflict and and on a wider level, how do you identify and resolve misconceptions that kids have?
1: Okay, yeah, um, misconceptions has also been a deep fascination of mine. I mean, I think for many science teachers, uh, and I don't doubt for math teachers as well, uh, the uh, sort of you know the, the way that kids uh, you know intuitively see. You know, uh, things like physics uh, often seems to just fundamentally get in their way of understanding uh, the ways we've now understand about physics uh, in the light of a a few centuries of uh, uh, experimental uh, investigation. And they're they're, they're hard. Um, Cognitive conflict, I suppose I'd probably trace it back. I mean, again, you can start these things at all sorts of places, but I suppose for me, uh, probably sort of Piaget's view of assimilation and accommodation of schema. Uh, so um, a very simple kind of explanation is uh, uh, in very early childhood uh, a child uh, basically forms uh, a schema which is a set of expectations perhaps uh, about the kind of the behaviour of objects in their environment. So let's say they've got a toy hammer or something like that. The child may discover that uh, banging it on the table produces a, a loud, pleasing noise that annoys their parents or mm-hmm. something. Um, if the child then uh, gets hold of another object, let's say, uh, I don't know, uh, 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 sort of like a, a real hammer or something like that, um, and they, they experiment with the same schema, the same pattern of behaviour, uh, and it produces a very similar effect. Uh, Piaget would say that the, uh, the, the schema assimilates that new experience, so the schema is expanded to incorporate this new object Uh, in terms of those expectations. Um, But what he said also happens is that that sometimes the kid will try it and they'll get an unexpected reaction from the environment. So if the kid tries it with an egg uh, and it just splatters everywhere and they get covered in sticky yolk, um, this uh, obviously was contrary to what the schema was telling the kid was the expected pattern of behavior in the environment. I'm massively oversimplifying, but it gives you a rough idea. And this creates a sense of uh, mental discomfort or cognitive conflict, where the child's expectations and the response from the environment mismatch. And what Piaget says is, that at that point, then either a new schema has to form or the schema has to change in order to accommodate this, this new uh, information from the environment. Yeah, so I mean, if we start with that very simple model, um, the idea that uh, when things in our environment don't match up to what we were expecting. It produces a kind of a state of mental discomfort. Uh, And Piaget describes this process of uh, equilibration where, uh, you know, the the schema have to uh, change or assimilate in order to kind of reduce that cognitive conflict, reduce that mental discomfort. And it's very sort of typical of kind of, uh, sort of you know, theories around that kind of period of uh, the sort of 1920s and 30s um, although a step up from the behaviorist model which wasn't really interested what was going on inside the mind just looking at the behavior and the responses they talk about uh, sort of you know, uh, sort of punishing feedback from the environment causing the behavior to change
0: got it and what what does the kind of more up-to-date research suggest is is creating this cognitive conflict an effective strategy to to get rid of to well to resolve these misconceptions
1: yeah, so cognitive conflicts, I suppose, um, more modern psychologists probably describe it as an example of, uh, cognitive dissonance. Uh, but, you know, where, where, uh, sort of, you know, we have an uncomfortable state where our prior beliefs and expectations aren't matched by, uh, sort of, you know, the, the incoming evidence from the rest of the world. Um, but we know that, uh, that doesn't always lead to schema to necessarily change. And indeed, there's some, some questions about whether schema do change in that respect. I'll come to it in a minute. Um, but I mean, you know, for instance, uh, you know, uh, sort of within psychology, uh, looking at, say, health information, uh, you may be aware that there are many people who are against vaccination under the sort of perhaps the misconceptions that it's linked with conditions like autism and, and, and other concerns that may or may not, you know, may not be warranted. Um, however, when you give them factual information to correct that, sometimes you get what's called the backfire effect. It can actually deepen and more solidify the, 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 misconce- the misapprehension rather than accepting the new information. Um, we also know that there's confirmation bias. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you know, we have a, a kind of a, you know, uh, an unhelpful rationality, which we've evolved and has probably got all sorts of uses in our evolutionary history. But it does mean that sometimes we tend to look for evidence that supports our prior beliefs and expectations and, and hypotheses. And we tend to ignore evidence that seems to go against them. And there's also evidence that, uh, you know, even where people have uh, successfully appeared to overcome misconceptions, that they're still there. Uh, There's an interesting study uh, looking at uh, physics misconceptions, and they've taken expert physicists, I mean, you know, with, with, you know, uh, sort of postgraduate qualifications in terms of physics, uh, and looked at their response times and error rates on questions where there was no. Great misconception over involved, which you know questions that uh, you know go along quite well with our intuitive understanding of the physical world um, compared to where there 's often misconceptions where the scientific conception of how the universe works and our everyday experience of it are mismatched and they find that even with very experienced scientists who know the right answers they 're more likely to make errors, and their response rate slows right down when uh, a question involves a misconception. And so I think probably more accurate kind of conception of misconceptions is that we we never really get rid of them. Um, They often sit, um, you know, potentially interfering with the correct conceptions. And it's probably better to think of uh, changing people's minds as more incremental than transformational. And certainly right back in the beginning of my career, I used to use things like concept cartoons, which I'm sure uh, science teachers uh, of a certain age will will remember, um, posing different uh, hypotheses around a kind of a physical problem um, and then trying to use some kind of practical way to uh, illustrate that the everyday conception isn't correct. Um, But it backfired more than once. I remember... uh, yeah again uh, physics teachers will, will know this one which was perhaps doing series of parallel circuits uh, with a year seven group for instance and um, uh, as you may know if you add bulbs to a series circuit which is a single loop uh, the bulbs will get dimmer and dimmer quite quickly uh, as you add more bulbs in but if you've got a parallel loop so essentially uh, two loops and you add bulbs to separate loops the bulbs retain their brightness now um you know, running that with year sevens, uh, I remember, yeah, you know, I, I could have pitched this as one of my worst lessons, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the students kind of, a number of them basically made up their results to fit what they thought would happen. Uh, and they would interpret even things like the very minute dimming that you do get in a parallel circuit, because obviously you've got a bit more wire. So there is a tiny bit more resistance. But I mean, they would interpret that tiny bit of dimming as the same as the lights dimming in a series circuit. And so they would just sit there and report, no, nope, the, the lights all go dim regardless of how many loops you have. Um, and it's our ability to ignore contrasting information to our expectations make it very difficult and I think to a certain extent you need to know quite a lot yes to be able to really understand where perhaps uh, more modern ideas conflict with our everyday experience or, or intuitive understanding uh, and indeed without that level of knowledge to a certain extent it's easy to miss what was important about yes. this new information that you need to be aware of um, or the worst one is where it can be presented you know, BBC sometimes gets uh, criticised, doesn't it, for kind of like this false balance. So you've got, uh, you know, all the scientists, uh, major climate scientists in the world, <laughs> saying, you know, climate change is, uh, you know, a, a human caused problem, and you might have, I don't know, someone like Nigel Lawson brought in on balance, you know, and it doesn't necessarily represent the same scientific consensus, but they're given kind of equal balance. And you know, again, it's very difficult, I think, um, for kids without that kind of prior knowledge of science to necessarily be able to kind of see you know where you're trying to contrast two ideas why the intuitively but wrong idea uh, isn't the better idea uh you, you
0: actually have to know quite a lot of the science I think to understand why something's a misconception I, th- I think you're right Nick and this this is my kind of take on it and I'd be interested in in, in your view on this so to, to to take a classic maths example so a major misconception kids have in maths is when you're adding two fractions together they'll just very happily add the two numerators and add the two denominators and think right j- job done there so if you take a classic one one third plus one fifth give that to a group of year sevens year nines or even year elevens and they'll happily tell you that the answer is eighths, one plus yeah. one is two three plus five is eight now there's there's kind of two viewpoints here on how you deal with that one of them is to create cognitive conflict and you may do that by first establishing with the kids that two eighths is the same as one quarter and maybe you do that via some assessment for learning or a diagnostic question then you need to establish that um a quarter is smaller than a third and then you also need to establish that when you add two positive quantities together and that the final amount you get is bigger than what you started with. And if the kids are secure in those three things, then you get the cognitive conflict, because one third plus one fifth equals two eighths, which is the same as a quarter. And look, you've ended up with something smaller, one quarter than what you started with, a third. But of course, the problem with this is for kids to appreciate that cognitive conflict, they've got to be comfortable with those three concepts that underlie it. Whereas the contrasting school of thought says, the chance is that that'll get muddled up somewhere in the kid's head, and they may not actually realise that's a cognitive conflict, and thus may actually it may actually reinforce their, their prior misconception that you add mis, that you add the denominators and numerators together. So instead, it's a better idea to simply teach kids the right method all the time, and hope that that somehow kind of dislodges, or in kind of Robert and Elizabeth Bjork's words, kind of makes the actual proper way of doing it more prominent and retrievable in long to memory than than the wrong way the misconception so does it come down does it come down to knowledge does it come down to the simple fact that cognitive conflict is effective if kids can actually understand that it is a conflict um well kind of yes and no <laughs> i was hoping for a simple answer there <laughs> yeah i mean
1: i think one of one of the, the issues one of the reasons that we uh, have misconceptions is where uh, you know mathematical or scientific ideas or the like uh, have emerged over the, the last few decades or centuries or millennia um that don't necessarily link with intuitive ways of, of thinking about the world um and but those intuitive ways of thinking about the world don't just go away when you confront them. um, They continue to to sit there. And over time, what we probably do is we learn to suppress the intuitive, uh, kind of, you know, quick response uh and we adopt the kind of the more complicated slower kind of set of information uh, that, you know so it's it's preferential activation of schema i suppose would be one way of describing it we learn to suppress the response of one schema so that we can actually use a, a different schema to to answer that kind of question um how do you achieve that well Yes. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at some of the evidence on de-biasing techniques uh, in terms of, you know, because psychologists have studied how do you convince people are against that, uh, vaccination, uh, why some of those beliefs might be wrong. Um, you know, and and the, one of the problems is that, you know, where you where you uh, sort of deliberately introduce the myth, uh, sometimes you reinforce it. Um, so I, I think I'd certainly have some. Uh, you know, sympathy, and I think there is some research evidence to suggest, you know, leading with the correct schema and trying to really try to uh, consolidate the the correct way of doing it uh, is is better than trying to lead with some kind of transformational effort based on on cognitive dissonance. It um, also, I think, you know, I mean, in order to get Uh, good at activating those that right set of schema uh clearly requires practice and eventually you might want to uh tackle the the kind of constant the the misconceptions that that often get activated uh you know instead of the the correct way of doing it Um, here i think i'd probably try and use uh, as I was talking about before, the kind of the interleaving between concrete and abstract examples. So, I mean, in terms of your fractions example, you know, uh, people use all sorts of things like pizza slices and things like this, don't they, to to, yes. to talk about uh, kind of, you know, the, the proportion of one uh, that, that a fraction might represent. Um, you know, obviously, that's quite intuitively easy to understand. Obviously, if you add a, a third of a pizza and a fifth of a pizza together, it doesn't make a quarter of a pizza. Uh, but that you won't necessarily be able to transfer that very easily when you come across other examples. Um, so you, it's alternating between the, the concrete and the abstract version of it, um, and eventually fading out the concrete components of it uh, is probably, you know, uh, from the research base, a good bet of trying to help children be able to use that kind of abstract level uh, when when solving kind of similar, similar problems in, in the future. Um, I think the, the kind of the key thing is, uh, you know, that the learning is more incremental than transformational. I think we like to I think we get very focused on the light bulb moment. Yes. Um, but but sometimes those light bulb moments are slightly ephemeral uh, and they can they can they can fade quite quickly. Uh, uh, you know, even even where they seem to be understood in the moment. Um, again, I could have picked this for one of my worst lessons. Uh, <laughs> Uh, was teaching a a, a sequence of learning about the elements and as I'm sure you may know historically uh, one of the conceptions of the elements very early one by Aristotle uh, was that there was uh, you know earth air water and fire uh, and uh, yeah perhaps spiritual essence or something like that but there was earth air water and fire uh, and in some combination they make up all objects in the in the world Uh, but of course uh, earth air water and fire uh, aren't elements and so we would demonstrate that water was an element by splitting up, by showing a video of electrolysis, uh, splitting it into hydrogen and oxygen, for instance. We'd have a look at uh, earth samples and how you can uh, kind of, you know, through various techniques, separate out some of the substances uh, that make up a, a mixture of soil or something like this. Of um, course, when I assessed them about elements, uh, obviously, I had a question there that said, which one of these is not an element, you know, hydrogen, oxygen? water you know um and you know loads of them go kind of pick water as an element you know they they, they kind of uh, the the misconception was was enhanced uh by by trying to put it in as a counter example um so yeah i think we've got to be a bit careful with uh leading with the, the counter examples the problem is is that intuitive things stick because they're intuitive yes. uh, and, and obviously where we want children to understand uh more more abstract conceptions that are at odds with our intuition. Um, then you know there is a danger by trying to put them side by side that they, they sort of you know the myth outweighs the the, the facts as it were um, what we go away with
0: is remembering the myth even more strongly and do you think it's important because I, I could literally talk about misconceptions all day and night even I'll, I'll try and limit myself but do you, do you think it's important Nick that kids are confronted with the misconception at some point or is it enough just to purely teach them the right way the right procedure and just kind of hope that this misconception never manifests itself.
1: Um, no, well, the, 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 I mean I, I'd be amazed if that ever happened. Uh, one of the reasons that there are stubborn misconceptions in science and maths is because they appeal to our uh, intuitive ways of seeing the world. Um, you know, we haven't got brains designed to do fractions or to understand uh, you know forces uh, or energy. Um, and so, but you know, these terms and these ideas uh, are used in everyday life. And are often attached to things that, for a scientist or a mathematician, would, would be inaccurate conceptions of those things. Um, so they're going to bump into them. Um, I suppose, you know, it's difficult to say. I think if it happens really early on, I might try and refocus them on, on kind of what, what we're doing. Um, I think eventually you, you probably will, they will naturally arise, uh, you know, kids will use a misconception to solve some kind of problem uh and i think you can illustrate to them hopefully through concrete examples you know why that would be why that would be incorrect um but i think you they never really go away um if you read daniel kahneman you know the sort of system one system two thinking system one thinking is fast intuitive and based on these kind of heuristics uh you know They're they're always going to be there as fast and ready ways of dealing with the world. Um, The system two, kind of more slower, more thoughtful, hopefully more accurate conceptions of these ideas um, are are always going to be tougher. Uh, And, you know, I think sometimes you can be as you, you can warn them where, look, when you see this kind of thing, there's going to be part of you that says, oh, I just do X, Y and Z. But you've seen here with this concrete example why that doesn't work. Um, So, again, I think I think what people kind of expect is if you put the misconception next to the, the the more accurate conception, kids will automatically go for the more accurate conception. I think what reality is, is that over time, incrementally. Uh, kids will learn not to use that fast, intuitive way of, of solving this problem uh, and hopefully start to use the more complex, more difficult, more abstract, uh, but but more correct way of tackling that problem. Um, and again, it probably depends a great deal on the misconception. I think some misconceptions you can, uh, with a concrete example, show why it doesn't work. Um, but there are plenty of misconceptions that involve Abstracts and invisible things, and certainly in science, we deal with the invisible all the time. Uh, and so, the idea that you can confront uh, a student with a, a physical example that shows that the conception is wrong uh, is is often not possible. Uh, and even if you see it in a simulation, it doesn't necessarily have the same effect, you know, you won't necessarily recognize that that that, that shows its misconception. So, I mean, a classic example is. Um, uh, kids often believe because everything in the world we ever experience tells us uh, that if you want something to move with a constant speed, you have to apply a force to it because the world is full of friction and air resistance that slows things down. And of course, when we're talking in terms of, I don't know, Newtonian mechanics and we're trying to kind of talk about the, the laws of motion and that actually an object will continue uh, at a constant speed until a new force interacts with it, uh, it's just so utterly counterintuitive. Yes so utterly at odds with everything you've ever experienced in your entire life or ever will, um, then it's not very surprising that these intuitive ways of thinking uh, will constantly reassert themselves when you're when you're sort of trying to tackle questions, even to the point that if you're as an experienced physicist, you will react slower and make more errors when you're dealing with things in that kind of domain. Um, so I, I think I think the idea that you can confront and somebody with a misconception, uh, uh, and, and create this cognitive conflict that transformationally changes the way kids think about the physical world or mathematics, um, is, it has been falsified. Um, we retain misconceptions for life. Uh, we probably never really get rid of our intuitive ways of thinking about the world because they're great for everything that we do. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and, and actually these weird abstract, but, but technically more accurate ideas about the world, um, are, you know, but eventually become preferentially activated when tackling the kinds of problems. But it's very easy to trip people up. So like, for instance, you can, uh, yeah, I don't know. Lots of people know about photosynthesis. And if you say to people, what what is photosynthesis? They'll say, Oh, it's uh you know, uh, isn't it isn't it where you get kind of carbon dioxide and and water and a bit of sunlight and it makes uh you know food for the plant. And you say, Great, fantastic, you know. Um but if you try that question in a slightly different way, if you say, Okay, um so uh here's an acorn and, and over there's an oak tree. Uh and as you can see, the oak tree is made of a lot more stuff than this acorn is. Where does that stuff come from? And even very educated people, even people who know quite a lot of science, uh, will will sometimes say, "Well, the soil," because it just seems so obvious. If you want stuff, where do, you know the soil is obviously stuff, isn't it? And so that's presumably where that stuff has come from.
0: I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say, Nick. So <laughs> thank thank God you've said it here. Yeah. Why is it not? Is it not the soil? No, it's the air.
1: Oh, geez,
0: flipping heck!
1: No, this is because. Intuitively, we don't think of the air as being a great deal of stuff. But actually, I mean, the wood in trees is predominantly carbon based. And certainly in terms of its mass, the carbon makes up a, a sort of like a large proportion of that. And that carbon comes from carbon dioxide that's absorbed with water to make the starches and the various other materials that trees put together to make wood and, and everything else and the fibres that, that allow them to uh, to 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 to, yeah, to to grow. Um so you know with the answer to where does all that stuff come from? Well actually you know most of it comes from the air.
0: Flipping heck.
1: Now you know the idea that uh, you can learn an awful lot about photosynthesis but the idea that you get rid of that misconception, yes. is that somehow it's transformed and that schema goes away or it changes so that it's now the correct way of thinking about it is is probably a misconception. Yes. Uh, it's probably more accurate to say that our intuitive ways of understanding the world remain with us uh, and are, uh, you know, and, unless we've had a, a greater practice at activating the correct schema over the incorrect one uh
0: we will probably fall into that intuitive way of thinking very easily uh, it. so so it's the case that so if, if someone asked me that question again i'd have to think quite hard to retrieve this conversation and think no actually what did nick say what did nick say it wasn't the soil all my instincts say the soil but actually it's the air whereas when i'm faced with adding fractions it's automatic for me to know to make the denominators the same and if anything i would have to think quite hard to to force myself not to do it the correct way and is that purely because I've got the knowledge and experience built up over the years of doing things the right way when it comes to fractions, whereas I only have my faulty intuition to fall back on when it comes to interpreting photosynthesis?
1: Um... Yeah, I mean, to, to a great extent, uh, you know, uh, there's two things here, isn't there? There's, there's kind of some aspects of pedagogical content knowledge. Uh, and I think one of the things that really great teachers do is they don't just know their subjects, uh, but they also know how kids think about yes, their subject. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's quite challenging, particularly if you found maths quite easy or you've uh, kind of accepted scientific ideas very readily uh, and, and kind of, you know, that they're very preferentially activated over more intuitive models is it's sometimes quite easy to forget actually how plausible and yes. how intuitive other models of thinking about this are and i think really experienced teachers over time and from experience and, and i also think from uh yeah cl- collegial discussions as well you know i mean talking with colleagues about the kinds of problems and obstacles and stumbling blocks that, that the students have got into uh is is quite I've always found a very rewarding subject kind the conversation and thinking about, okay, well, you know, what's a good way to explain this idea in year seven so that they don't have this problem in year 10? Because of the way I've explained it actually ac- accidentally reinforces particular <laughs> yes. kind of misconception when we start tackling at a later level. Um, so there are all sorts of Sequence and, and, and subject knowledge type questions, but mediated through what I call, uh, well, psychologists call a kind of theory of mind, understanding how other people think. And um, we, we use our own mind as a, a model for how other people think. Uh, and so I think there is some, sometimes an advantage to, uh, kind of
0: knowing, having fallen into some pitfalls.
1: Yes. I, mean, I bet you never forget that face synthesis question. Oh, yeah. there.
0: No, it's, it's, it's lodged now, Nick, definitely.
1: Well, you might not. You, you may or may not. Um But, I mean, if I asked the question in a slightly different way, you know, there'd probably still be that temptation. Yeah, to of it. course. Of you course. It's whether or not you can, you realise this is a similar, a similar, problem uh, and therefore I need to kind of you know use a particular schema uh, is, a, is a, a very difficult question and one of the difficulties is we don't tend to transfer ideas very readily between uh, kind of domains or even very far within domains um, we've known since sort of people like Thorndike who was looking at things like uh, just teaching kids Latin help them with maths and things like that and finding that it didn't seem to help them at all that um, actually uh, you know our knowledge doesn't transfer very far and so even though you could have told me all about photosynthesis, I don't doubt, uh, <laughs> you know, it's very easy to, to to come at another problem in a slightly different direction that activates an older more intuitive schema rather than the more accurate conception of it. So. You know, when when Bjorks talk about desirable difficulties and things like that, I often kind of phrase that in terms of talking to teachers about varying the conditions of practice, being aware that, you know, if you only approach a schema from a particular direction, um, then the chances are if if a question comes at a slightly odd angle, Uh, it won't activate that, that body of knowledge, that, that set of information and, and, you know, conceptual understanding. It'll probably just activate the more intuitive one that sits there, uh, kind of sullenly, uh, kind of waiting for its opportunity to mislead. Um, and, and so sometimes the, the reason kids seem to slip back into misconceptions, uh, isn't because actually they don't know the correct conception, but perhaps because the, the, the cues are unfamiliar enough that they've activated an older, Uh, kind of more intuitive schema rather than the more accurate conception.
0: Yes, and I guess when when I was talking to to Daisy Christodula, we we had a big chat about misconceptions and it it really reinforced to me the importance of the examples that we as teachers choose to give our kids, right? Because if you choose your examples, and I assume it's similar in science, but it definitely is true in maths. If you don't choose your examples and you work examples carefully, kids can end up getting things right for the wrong reasons while still holding a misconception that hasn't been exposed. And then as you, as you rightly say, if further down the line, the question's asked in a slightly different way that they're not experienced in, then all of a sudden this this long buried misconception suddenly resurfaces because they've they've got nothing nothing else kind of fighting against it for for their attention if that makes sense so um, i'm absolutely i'm obsessed with examples at the moment i I
1: might i might reverse the order i think actually the natural conception intuitive conception sits right near the surface right almost any approach to it could activate that yes
0: i like that i like that over time
1: we learn to suppress that immediate response and think oh hang on a minute and and do a deeper search to find that actually there's this uh, deeper underneath uh, a a more complex uh, but more accurate version of thinking about that particular problem. So, uh, yeah, I'd I'd probably reverse the order in your metaphor and and suggest that actually it's the, the intuitive one that's more readily activated.
0: I like that. Fantastic. Well, that was superb, that Nick. And I want to ask you now another big one that's that's kind of swimming around my head at the moment, and, that, and that's differentiation. Because for for years, so this is my what thirteenth year as a teacher. Anytime I uh, observe a lesson or anytime I'm working with trainee teachers or I'm planning a lesson for Ofsted or whatever, differentiation is always kind of in the forefront of, of my mind. But having done a bit of reading um, of the research and particularly reading some of um, Greg, Greg Ashman's uh, blog posts, I'm starting to question whether differentiation is, is all that it's cracked up to be. So I'm interested in, in your take. And first, what are, are there some dangers of differentiation and, and how should teachers plan for differentiation, if at all? Yeah, I think one of the
1: difficulties with differentiation is it's kind of like a phrase that means so many different things. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, at one level, I mean, if, if a child is partially sighted, uh, or they've got hearing difficulties, or you know, have a range of kind of things that mean that you need to make some adaptation in your classroom, or sort of the seating arrangement, uh, or you know, uh, in terms of the resources, you know, bigger print or whatever else, so that that child has uh, you know the, the same opportunities as everyone else as much as we can possibly do to to access the learning and what's going on in the classroom to the same degree as everyone else. Uh, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. I think where it becomes more problematic is where the differentiation forms around uh, you know, perhaps particular labels or particular conditions where it's not immediately obvious what intervention would actually help that student. And I think, you know, I don't think. I think sometimes a lot of these debates get rather unhelpful. I, I think everybody in these debates, whether they would say them or pro differentiation or or i 've got problems with differentiation, I think we all want the same things for students. We all want all of our students, uh, regardless of their uh, you know, their, their background or any disabilities that they might happen to have or uh, difficulties that they have within our subject or within school generally to have every opportunity to, to, to learn about uh, our subjects and to, to achieve uh, and experience success uh, within our classrooms. And I, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, what's positive around differentiation is, for instance, thinking about um, the kind of the, 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 the different... Uh, kind of prior knowledge, for instance, that that kids come to. We know that new learning uh, is predicated on what you already know. Uh, everyone, I mean, you know, this isn't revolutionary. I mean, you know, people like Piaget were saying back in the 1920s and before that, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Gilly, you know, that that uh, you know, our, our learning is couched in what we already know. Uh, and within your classroom, there are going to be kids that. Uh, have a great deal of background knowledge that will support a very rapid learning of perhaps the new elements that you're trying to put in. Um, whereas there are going to be other students perhaps don't have those experiences or don't don't have that kind of background uh, in terms of their sort of their knowledge or their vocabulary um, that makes it much harder for them to to learn those kind of next steps. Um, so you know it's being aware about um, what are the differences in terms of. Uh, the kind of not we talk about prior attainment, but really it's the, the kind of like the, 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 the knowledge and the expertise and the skills of the different uh, individuals within our classroom. Now, of course, to a certain extent, I mean, personalised learning as a teacher in a classroom is, is kind of almost impossible. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, you, there isn't really enough planning time in the world. And obviously what then tends to happen is kids get kind of grouped together, uh sometimes rather artificially and I, I think sometimes rather unhelpfully in terms of artificially i mean i'm sure uh if you, we sound like we, we started teaching roughly around the same sort of time you know i mean if i've, I've seen for instance planners with a visual auditory and kinesthetic uh, stamp on the front of yes it, uh, and then sort of you know so the teacher grouping visual learners together with for one type of task and the kinesthetic ones you know where the label isn't valid uh i i you know, the intervention is very unlikely to help and often I think again going back to the learning preferences i've had kids that say to me well i'm a, a visual learner uh i can't read this book have you got any videos i can watch and it's like well <laughs> you know, actually if you're if you're finding the reading and writing aspects of this difficult you know i can support you in kind of doing that but you almost certainly need more practice at it um and you know the idea that we we, to, we move children away from the things that they find challenging that they probably could improve at if they had a bit more practice at, uh, is, is a potentially kind of, you know, the kind of differentiation I think people do disagree with. And I, I know there's many people who would listen to this podcast who would say, well, you know, actually yeah, dividing kids up on kind of artificial labels like this is, is, is clearly, you know, unlikely necessarily to, to, to help those students. Um, particularly if then the content means that some kids can get further in the, the, the subject than others you know, in a subject like science, it's exactly the same I imagine in maths, you know, the, there are things that you need to practice in order to get good at them. Uh, there are key kind of, you know, terms and things like that, that you need, you know, to be very familiar with, to be very good at it. Um, you know, Daniel Willingham describes, uh, you know, rather than trying to match the kind of resources or the activity to the supposed preference of the child, to actually think very hard about In terms of the the, the content I'm teaching, what is the, the best way to help illustrate this particular idea? Yes. Um, I know, for instance, the learning scientists, I mean, this goes back to Pavio's research on uh, dual coding, suggests that, you know, because there are two major pathways through working memory, um, we can exploit for all children, actually, uh, the fact that a verbal description with a relative a relevant diagram uh, or illustration uh, of the same concept that we're trying to explain um, can, can be kind of held in mind simultaneously. Uh, and again, you know, this, this kind of uh, finding, you know, these, using both of these routes through working memory um, is a sort of like a helpful way uh, in terms of, you know, children sort of dealing with kind of more abstract uh, and difficult kind of information that we teach them, sort of maths and science.
0: And can I ask Nick as well? Because I think where, where I've got a bit of a, a question mark against differentiation, and it goes back to what you mentioned before about this distinction between learning and performance, and often in the past, um, I think I've been guilty of moving kids on too fast so certain kids in my head who I think your high ability or high achieving or uh, I'll witness in the lesson and I'll see right they've got the first three questions right so I'll say right off you go you get on with this extension material and so on and having kind of read more that it's very difficult um, sometimes to to ascertain actual learning when all we can kind of witness as teachers is performance I wonder what your take on uh, on that is If, if it's a case that it's perhaps better practice to almost move kids along all at the same pace because we are so uncertain about what kids are actually learning in the moment as opposed to fast tracking some kids onto extension material when they might not actually be as comfortable as they need to be with the basics if that makes sense yeah i mean you know
1: i mean it's the the difficulties of trying to assess something invisible like learning as you say we we tend to uh form uh inferences based on what the, the kid appears to be able to do in the moment uh, and of course, you know, when you just explain something and it's fresh in mind, uh, it may seem really easy to do. Um, but however, you know, uh, 10 minutes later, having not done it uh, and that, that kind of Im- immediate memory for that particular procedure, for instance, in, in maths, uh, you know, has has decayed. Um, the, whether whether or not they really still have learned that and whether they really know it um, is, is kind of open to question. Um, I don't think there's. I mean, I think this is the difficulty. Of you. I mean, it depends. It's so the, the problem with differentiation is that it means so many things to different yes, people. Yes. Yes. And I think in terms of overcoming the kind of the difficulty that you're talking about, it's like how much practice do different children need before we can reasonably move them on? Um, and you know, there's lots of different uh, approaches to this. I mean, so on the EEF toolkit, for instance, uh, one of the entries is for mastery learning, uh, rated on average plus five months for, for what that's worth. Um, and what they do is they sort of recommend you, you're aiming for a very high success rate before moving on. Now, to get a success rate, and they, I think the suggestion is about 80%. So let's say you've got, uh, you know, uh, some sort of 10 questions, uh, similar kinds of examples, variations of the theme, uh, and everybody everybody in your class has got up to kind of like 80% that you can kind of move on. But the truth is that for some children, it's going to require quite a lot of examples, more examples, for them to uh, consolidate that. And for other kids, they're going to consolidate it quite quickly. And so there's always this kind of tension in the classroom, is that you don't want to move on too quickly, because then you won't have really had the opportunities to consolidate it. And at the same time, if you're uh, going very slowly, then, well, you know,
0: some of the children may not feel stretched and challenged. It's always the kind of thing in classes, isn't it? Yeah, so I tell you, the, the more the more I read, the less I know and understand about teaching. Nick, it's flipping confusing. This, but oh, yeah, that, that shows your movement along the Dunning Kruger curve, doesn't it? I hope so. I hope so. that's what I'm clinging on to. Anyway, I think, and, I think these things really are
1: complicated, and I think you know it's very difficult for me to talk about in in sort of maths because obviously it's going to be quite subject sensitive. And again, if you want nomothetic principles, I would say you know the more the closer something is to the concrete and the everyday and the intuitive, probably the, the children will need less practice in order to really consolidate it. The further it is away, the more abstract, the more unfamiliar, the more counterintuitive it is, then you can always guarantee they're going to need more practice and consolidation asset. I think sometimes teachers get hung up in a particular lesson context. It's like, uh, yeah, how will I know if they've, they've, they've learned it across this lesson? Well, the truth is that, you know, between one lesson and the next time you see them, Uh, They'll have forgotten a lot. uh, It's not most of kind of what you've taught them in that previous lesson. So think of it rather than progress in a lesson. It's probably helpful to think about progress over a sequence of learning. How many times do you need to return to an idea to give children practice at it? Well, part of that's going to depend on the child's prior knowledge and how quickly they can consolidate the new information uh, and link it with their prior experience. And some kids are going to do that quite quick. For others, they're going to need quite a lot of practice, but that practice needs to be distributed. So another way of thinking about it is this. You're thinking about the exposure to the kind of the core concepts, the difficult abstract ideas, that you want children to really be confident in uh, as they move through mathematics, so they can really experience that, sort of, that sense of wonder that comes with really understanding a bit of maths. Um, you know, you're probably not going to get that by the end of the lesson. Um, you probably need to think about what that looks like over a longer period of time so you can distribute that practice. And so, I don't know, I mean, if a kid who needs a lot of practice doesn't quite complete all of the practice examples during the course of the lesson, diagnostically, you can certainly see whether there's like a fundamental misconception or whether it's just that they need more practice. But but over time. Um, Now, one of the difficulties, I think, is where do we put that into the busy timetable and curriculum? And this is where a real tension comes in, I think. There's a famous uh, Simpsons episode, I'm sure you're aware of it, uh, where Bart Simpson is sent to a, a school uh, for, for children who are kind of behind in terms of their progress. And in the context of this school, the teacher says, OK, well, we're going to go through like really kind of basic steps really, really slowly. And Bart Simpson says, well, hang on. So we're behind all the other kids and we're going to catch up with them by going slower. <laughs> you know, if children need more practice, uh, more support, more support, to to, to be able to, uh, you know, learn and consolidate these things. Um, The, the, you know, the difficulty becomes within the kind of the opportunity cost within the timetable, what what do you ever remove to ensure that those children have those opportunities for support and, uh, you know, for practice? Because the other aspect I didn't talk about, because we talked about kind of uh, practice and assessing kind of how kids are going through, but we, we also could have talked about uh, scaffolding. So, uh, for instance, you... you When when tackling a new topic, particularly if it's conceptual and very very abstract and difficult, there's probably a good argument for using uh, lots of worked examples and perhaps partial solutions to to break down the kind of the complex concepts or the the complex procedures into smaller steps that can be kind of consolidated um, before trying to kind of put them all together. Now, you know, to what extent students need more worked examples to help them and which ones can they start tackling and practicing independently uh, is another thing that you know to a certain extent i I don't think we'll ever really be truly mapped out as some kind of perfect solution you know as i keep trying to say you know uh, evidence-based research doesn't remove professional judgment uh you know uh, it actually makes it i think hopefully more informed challenged refined but but as important as it ever was Uh, and using that professional judgment and sort of thinking, okay, I know that this topic is conceptually very difficult. Um, We know that by uh, kind of at the end of this we want children to be really confident doing the, this kind of complex mathematical procedure and we also know that we want to be able to kind of put in the kinds of variations that look very different but actually use the same kinds of rules so that they can use the abstract level schema to solve all sorts of uh, sort of you know similar deep but but superficially different kinds of problems now you know the amount of scaffolding the amount of practice uh, you know is going to depend on a whole variety of factors um, and as I said I don't think anyone's got a perfect uh, a solution to the fact that some children are going to need more scaffolding and practice than others in order to, to really get to that same point got it. of course the temptation one of the I think one of the concerns about uh you know some of the movements both in primary schools and, and secondary schools as well is where uh perhaps some of the other subject areas start losing ground uh and you know the timetable starts getting swallowed up by by maths and english um because because their they're, they're core because the accountability framework looks at those very very specifically and let, let's not get it wrong you know i mean and being able to read and write and being numerous are really important uh things for future life you know regardless of what you want to do um, you know, I think many teachers are concerned about the broader curriculum and that, you know, other subjects, whether it's art and music or whether it's, uh, uh, uh you know, um, uh, sort of yeah, physical exercise, sports, those kinds of things, um, sometimes can become the kind of, uh, the, you know, the, the diminishing areas within a curriculum, uh, in order to kind of maximize these things for everybody. Uh, um, I also know that you know, some schools kind of look very hard at things like homework in terms of consolidating that practice and encouraging things like homework clubs where kids who need more support with that um, can get that kind of sort of perhaps more teacher guidance uh, and scaffolding to, to kind of help them into that practice. Um, so I don't think there are any perfect solutions to it. And, you know, I don't think anyone really denies that kids vary in terms of their background knowledge, vary in terms of how quickly they can uh, latch on to uh, new, particularly abstract and difficult concepts uh, and how much practice they'll need to really consolidate it. Um, but certainly in terms of when, when people talk about differentiation, that's, that tends to be how I kind of think of it.
0: Got it. No, that's, that's super useful, that Nick. No, thank you for that. And I just want to ask you a couple more, um, areas that are, are of great interest to me, if that's all right. And the, the first one is, because when I started my teaching career, and it sounds like, as you say, that we started roughly the same time, it was all about learning styles and, about five years ago, some the new learning styles for me came, came onto the scene, which was growth mindset. And everyone was going growth mindset crazy. And it's kind of died down a little bit. But three or four years ago, it was assembly after assembly, posters all over the wall, failure's good, have a growth mindset. And I just wonder, what's your take on this? And, and firstly, is, is there any scientific basis for the notion of a growth mindset? OK, yeah, so I
1: mean, Dweck's research uh, is is a branch of what's called attribution theory. So in cognitive psychology, uh, the, the way we form the what, what um when we achieve success or failure and have kind of particular experience, what do we attribute that to? Do we attribute that to something in ourselves? Do we contribute, uh, attribute that to something in the environment? Uh, and how does that influence then our future behavior? Um, you know, I mean, in terms of the fact that we have different attributions about things, uh, I think is is well scientifically formulated. Though it's worth bearing in mind that psychology is in the grip of a replication crisis uh, and even fairly well established ideas. So things like social priming or ego depletion, which some of your listeners may be aware of, um, you know, have, have failed under the, the, the kind of like the crucible of replication in recent years. So with any new branch of science, with any new branch of psychology, uh, I think we need to kind of take everything with a bit of a pinch of salt uh, and look at how it plays out when things have been replicated, not just by the primary research, but other people trying to replicate those same kind of findings um, before kind of seizing them as as kind of reliable principles we can build into the classroom. Um, Now, you know, I'm, I'm... uh, broadly persuaded that there is a difference between uh, sometimes a learning and a performance orientation to things. Sometimes it's very adaptive and very natural to take a performance orientation. So if I'm, uh, you know, going to do my driving test, or I'm about to go on stage and deliver lines, uh, you know, or about to be interviewed by Craig Barton, I might reasonably have adopt a performance orientation. Uh, you know, I want to make a, a good impression. I want to get it right. Uh, you know, and that may motivate me to, to 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 practice things but it may also make me a, a bit anxious now, a little bit of anxiety is quite helpful you know actors talk about butterflies in the stomach and actually a little bit of anxiety kind of helps us to perform really well obviously too much and, and it becomes uh, detrimental but also too little if you're too laid back and you don't really care uh then you don't tend to get your best performance on the other hand, um, uh, on many other occasions in life, uh, you may have a more learning orientation to things. So, uh, you know, if you can see this as an opportunity to get better at something uh, that you're so doing a driving lesson, uh, for instance, you know, if I make a, a complete, uh, you know, a stitch up of my uh, reversing around a corner or something, um, then you know, it doesn't have any kind of high stakes attached to it. Obviously, I, I want to get it right, but I can see it as a, a learning opportunity to get better at it, better practice uh, for the future. Now, when do we adopt a learning or a performance orientation to things? Now, Dweck suggests that it's to do with the way we conceive about intelligence. Um, that. If we see intelligence as something that is essentially fixed, uh, perhaps determined by our genes or something ridiculous, um, then we are more likely to adopt a kind of more performance orientation uh, when we're in school, or uh, attempting to, uh, to, to, you know, to uh, learn things in school. On the other hand, if we see intelligence as something that's malleable, something that uh, adapts and, and changes over time, uh, then perhaps we're more likely to take on a learning orientation. Now. Whether those uh, whether those kind of connect up, if you like, and to be honest, I'm, I'm, I find reasonably uh, uncontroversial. I think what's more difficult is is it educationally useful, is it educationally important? Uh, and here's a, a question. I mean, my own personal experience back at school, as I said, I'm a science math nerd. I was I was kind of constantly in my books. <laughs> uh, I was rubbish at PE. Um, and I don't I certainly I don't think, and I don't think direct claims that there's some kind of global growth mindset or global fixed mindset. I think actually we tend to adopt a learning or a performance orientation, depending on what we perceive to be this, the stakes to a great degree. So in terms of maths, uh, you know, uh, maths was really hard, but I had no doubt that with the teacher's help and with, uh, you know, doing my homework and a bit of practice, uh, I could, I could, you know, succeed in maths. I could make, you know, learning maths. On the other hand, trying to climb a rope, uh, <laughs> you know, it was just a, a, an exercise in humiliation. I should <laughs> point out I'm a late summer baby, all right, 28th August. So I, I was, yeah, certainly in my the, uh, in year seven, uh, you know, I, I kind of I was very small compared to my peers, uh, very physically underdeveloped. So you know, I think that we, we vary in terms of our uh, whether we adopt a learning or uh, a, uh, a performance orientation, and some of that's in the environment. And, and I think certainly, uh, you know, where you want a learning orientation, I think uh, trying to uh, drop the perceived stakes so that, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of stakes, but but not a lot. Um, so, you know, again, kind of thinking about, uh, you know, sometimes I get asked this in relationship to kind of like low stakes quizzing and these sorts of things, you know, should it be no stakes or low stakes? My argument has always been, well, it should have a little bit of stakes. I mean, yes. it should be, because if it's no stakes at all, then the chances are the person's gonna be so relaxed that they don't really care whether they've done well or not. They might not, you know, really give it any effort. Um, there's a little bit of stakes, so, you know, they're going to get some feedback on it, you know, uh, they'll, you know, um, then that probably kind of raises the performance a little bit, but we, but it should be low stakes. It should be almost, almost trivial level where you've got that, um, but with some accountability, you're much more likely, I think, to adopt a, a kind of a learning orientation, obviously, if you know that this is going to be fundamental to the rest of your life kind of thing, uh, you know, it's an important, uh, uh, sort of, you know, qualification that you you desperately want because you want to go and do something else with it. Um, I, I think it's quite natural for children to adopt a more performance orientation. So I don't know how consistent uh, a mindset really is. I think even within a subject area, uh, I can certainly think of some areas that I really struggled with. Uh, if I can remember back, I think one was a uh, like moment of inertia. Uh, in applied mathematics was one that i really struggled with and i don't really even, even know why <laughs> I'm a great teacher and you know but for whatever reason i could understand the, the kind of basics of it whenever i attempted a question i just tie myself up in knots with it and just never really kind of like and i, I wasn't even sure where i'd gone wrong um so i probably had a bit of a fixed mindset about moment of inertia um whereas others you know uh Uh, I know uh, harmonic oscillations and imaginary numbers and things like that you know I, i i felt more confident with um on the other hand you know in sport i remember um you know actually playing hockey i really enjoyed and i think because i could swing a big stick and perhaps because of my physics knowledge and and you know as you know uh was it archimedes said you know give me a Leave a long enough and a place to stand. And I can move the earth. You know,
0: you
1: you you've got some good moment of inertia on that actually. <laughs> to, to to kind of yeah you know, give the ball make up a little bit for for my lack of kind of physical strength and coordination at a young age. Um, but I, I, I felt I could get better at that, and so I wouldn't say I had a fixed mindset across the whole of PE. Um, I also really enjoyed cross country running, uh, which again you know was just kind of uh, again competitive. But sort of competitive in a slightly different way, kind of on stamina rather than necessarily on strength and these sorts of things. So,
0: can, can I ask Nick, just just kind of related to that, you've, you've mentioned um, kind of low stakes or no stakes tests. Is it? Are there any other practical things that I'm thinking more as a classroom teacher that you can do to facilitate the good parts of a growth mindset? Um, p- possibly,
1: yes. Um, I, I mean, what I was going to say is that actually. One of the problems with the kind of the growth mindset is when you look at the uh, the kind of interventions that have apparently been successful. Um, so I'm thinking of ones, particularly by people like uh, Walton, Jaeger, uh, uh, and obviously the Dweck as well. They've tended to be extremely very subtle, uh, almost like almost like little nudges to try and get you back into a more virtuous circle. Right. The argument is, is that sometimes what will happen is that because you think that your ability is fixed in something, it's quite natural withdraw effort. I mean, if you really just think you're you're wasting your time, uh, you know, it's it's a, a adaptive for you to withdraw effort from it. Uh, and where you think, on the other hand, that you can progress and make more uh, great progress with it, um, it's much more likely that you're going to invest more effort in that in the future now of course the in, the interventions that have actually achieved that and apparently achieved some results of it though, still need some some further replication. i think have been extremely sh- subtle deliberately short-lived and very psychologically targeted on a particular conceptual barrier for instance that that is preventing the kid from perhaps reapplying some more effort and the the argument for why they work is that 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 very subtle nudge means that the student just applies a little bit more effort, perhaps sees a little bit more success as a consequence of that, and gets into a kind of a more virtuous circle with it. Now my issue with the growth mindset probably is the fact that, you know, that, that very nuanced, psychologically targeted, very subtle kind of intervention, uh, you know, hasn't really been reflected in the way that schools have approached it, and I know Carol Dweck herself has been very critical of some of this, and that's perhaps why some people are kind of a bit more skeptical of the, the growth mindset now. You're probably going to have to remind me of your question. Sorry, I've, I've got
0: <laughs> no. I was just wondering, as as a classroom teacher, well, what would be some practical things that I might do to help my students develop the growth a uh, growth mindset, if that's actually possible?
1: Yeah, I mean. To be honest, I probably wouldn't try and tackle it necessarily at the level of attitudes. Um, If you look at the balance of evidence about whether changing people's beliefs or attitudes uh, influences their behavior, we find lots of examples where it it doesn't. Um, So I I would say rather than trying to uh, tackle things at the level of motivation, at the level of growth mindset, I would really try and think about, what would help the student achieve more success within this subject's area uh, what kind of scaffolding or support what kind of uh, you know uh, additional practice what kind of um, uh, what kind of support can we give them so that they actually start building a sense of genuine success it's all very well said to kids, oh you know your brain can grow and uh, you know you, you can exercise it like a muscle um, but unless they actually see that for real. Yes. Uh I just don't I think it's just gonna impact on the surface. And it's very easy to play a social desirability response game. So if you tell kids growth mindset good, fixed mindset bad, uh you know, the kind of questionnaires that are often used to measure it, uh yeah, you know, I'm not surprised they come back, you know, with all the kids saying, Oh, I've got a growth mindset. <laughs> yes. Um you know, but there's wider evidence as well. I mean, Goret C. and Davis's review back in 2012, uh, if you're interested in educational research, uh, is uh, an enormous uh, undertaking looking at like, like huge amounts of evidence on uh, aspirations, self-efficacy, self-concept, you know, uh, the whole range of things, including things like parental interventions and all sorts of other things, um, to see whether or not sort of attitudes, aspirations and behaviors had any kind of great link with with outcomes, and in the main, he finds the evidence base deeply wanting, uh, even where occasionally there are quite plausible mechanisms for things, um, actually you find that the evidence for interventions is, is really poor, doesn't really give you that causal level uh, kind of approach to it. So I think you know, teachers, rather than worrying about whether your kids have got a great mindset or not, I think really thinking about what, what genuinely would help the student uh, be successful in maths uh, and then doing that Um, I think one of the ways you can uh, kind of think about that is obviously one of the things we know from uh, kind of things like trying to change people's health behavior, for instance, uh, is it's very often, uh, again, trying to do kind of like an attitude level can backfire if people don't have the kind of strategies and support to make the behavioral changes that are required. And again, trying to focus in on uh, kind of strategies to adopt uh, you know, uh, might be a more helpful ways to, to, to kind of think about uh, how you uh, kind of build up that success. Um, I'd also, as a teacher, I'd, I'd kind of really try and make it as concrete as possible. Um, you know, if you're measuring growth mindset and a kid goes from 3.6 to 4.1, that's essentially meaningless to everybody. And it's certainly something <laughs> you can feed back to the kid or the kid's parents. You know oh, your kids gone to 4.1 on the growth mindset scale i think trying to put it into much more concrete kind of you know try and think of the behavior that would uh go along with the kind of attitudes that you're trying to instill um you know, so, I mean, you know, are they, uh, you know, are they are they doing all their homework? Are they, uh, you know, coming to school every day? You know, there are things that you can say to parents that make sense to them uh, that you might use preferentially to try and talk about kind of abstract ideas about mindsets and things. So to, for whatever you're trying to instill in terms of character attitudes or, or mindsets or whatever else, what would be the behavior that would show you uh, that? You know, those, those those attitudes have changed, and that's probably much more useful for you to to consider in terms of whether you're trying to assess it or trying to give feedback on it. Much more meaningful to both the student and the parent uh, uh, about you know what what's actually changed. I right. think there are some wider things as well in terms of some of the what the normative influence, the social norms uh, around the school. Um, I think you know it's it's all very well saying to students, you know. Uh, Uh, This is all about learning. It's kind of low stakes environment. You know, if you make mistakes, well, we're going to learn from that and and, and work out how to how to move forward on it. Um, You know, has to be within the kind of the the, sort of the the culture of the school. I think one of the things that's not necessarily terribly helpful in assessment is the belief that you know, the only way we can assess things is to give kids mock exams every few weeks, you know, um, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But again, you know, working on the building blocks and getting feedback on the kind of the building blocks, uh, the knowledge, the concepts, the vocabulary, rather than trying to constantly call for a performance. And if you're constantly calling for a performance, you shouldn't be massively surprised that the kids adopt a more performance orientation to Um, it. You know, there probably is also, I I wonder whether there's maybe more value in thinking about how teachers think about intelligence. And, you know, this was an area uh, that, you know, I I think has always been very controversial in education. I mean, not not because historically it's been uh, kind of, you know, a very controversial subject. but I, I do wonder, and I, I, I wrote a recent TS article, and one of the articles I put in there was by Professor uh, Nisbet, who who's a kind of uh, uh, psychologist who's worked for an enormous time in, in, in IQ and intelligence uh, sort of testing, um, giving a kind of teacher-friendly summary about what we do and don't know uh, about intelligence and what, what we can say and what, what we definitely know isn't true. Um, and I, I do wonder, rather than perhaps the, you know, your, your brain can grow kind of level, <laughs> whether genuinely there, there's there it would help teachers to actually understand a bit better, uh, the, genuinely the science around you know, intelligence uh, and not just the misconceptions. I think quite often what teachers intuitively kind of think, oh, well, you know, IQ just measures. I, how good you are at iq tests and all these kinds of things and i know david Dider, for instance i mean his new book uh attempts to try and unpack some of that uh in a kind of like a teacher-friendly uh way so but 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 still happens sort on of maintaining some of the the, the the core of those arguments i think one of the other things that, that young people also do and i think i i don't know whether it gets worse in secondary school but it certainly sometimes feels that way um certainly adolescents perhaps move from uh, seeking and, uh, you know, uh, kind of, you know, actively seeking perhaps parental or adult approval for their actions and start to look much more within their peer group uh, about sort of affirmation uh, and validation. Um, so as a classroom teacher in a secondary school, there the sometimes feels quite limited what you can do, particularly if the kids are making comparisons between each other. Uh, yes. And obviously that that can be extremely difficult. So I probably, at the very least, I try and discourage uh, children from trying to make uh, too much comparison with their peers. And there's um, a form of assessment. I mean, everyone's heard of formative assessment, summative assessment. No, everyone's heard of ipsative uh, assessment.
0: Oh no, go on, ipsative.
1: Yeah, it's where you make a comparison to your personal best. Well, oh. I've always wondered, and I've made limited use of it uh, back when I was a science teacher, um, whether rather than reporting for, for the low-stakes stuff that you're just doing you know, day by day, week by week, rather than giving grades, um, why not feedback on where that is compared to the student's previous best Um You know, I I don't know. I mean, it's that's a that's a a work in progress, a suggestion that there might be some value in in rather than thinking about how do I compare to my peers? How do I compare to my my previous attempts? Uh, And that's often struck me as perhaps an underutilized form of assessment. I don't I don't really see uh, being discussed or used very often.
0: I like it. flipping it. That's fantastic, that Nick. Um, just just to start to wrap things up, I wonder if I could ask you just to reflect on a few things. And the first thing I want to ask you is, what would you say the most interesting piece of educational research you've ever seen is?
1: Uh, oh gosh, that's kind sweet shop, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think there were lots of them. Uh, the Goretti and Davis review of attitudes, aspirations, and behaviours and their influence on student outcomes was a real eye-opener. Uh, and it's one that I often recommend on the basis that, uh, you know, I don't know, is that interesting or surprising? I think I might come back Perhaps uh, to that one. Uh, one of the ones that was quite interesting to me was the uh, Dunlosky review of study skills. Um, earlier in my career, I, I was a learning to learn coordinator and often put together uh, packages and resources for tutors and students to use in terms of supporting their revision. And so much of it, I look back on and think, you know, God, that that was dreadful. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it over relied on things like the mics, uh, yes. which are very, very useful where there's a slightly arbitrary order of something uh, to recall, or the, the the structure of it's quite concrete uh, and, you know, lends itself well to that. Um, but, you know, actually, I think what was really interesting about that review is how... Uh, ineffective, many of the, the kinds of uh, study strategies students use is, and I think one of the reasons it's so interesting is I think all of us want students to eventually become very independent in their learning after they go on from school, regardless of whether they go to university or into an apprenticeship or they're learning through work. Uh, we all want students to have uh, the ability to be able to, uh, you know, to, to have the kinds of strategies that, that are really effective in terms of supporting their own learning. And, you know, a lot of the things that obviously got reviewed in that, like kind of highlighting and underlining, you know, I mean, may have a role, but they're, they're not very effective <laughs> in their own right. So I think that, that one might be the, the most interesting. Uh, I, Yeah, it's really
0: arguable that I could pick seven. Fantastic. And you, and you kind of teased us a bit there with what you consider the most surprising. Can you just expand on that a bit, please? Yeah, Nick? I mean, I, I, I think, intuitively, I think we all kind of, uh, I think
1: intuitively, I mean, it's a bit like we're talking about misconceptions in, in, in maths and in science and all these sorts of things. I think there are kind of folk psychology misconceptions as well. I think one of our folk psychology misconceptions is that if we can change the attitudes of people, then their behavior will rapidly and routinely follow those changes in attitudes, bringing about the kind of change that we want. Um, Now, you know, I often, when when writing about this or talking about it, kind of say, point out that everybody you know is struggling to change their behaviour. You know, they may passionately believe they need to, I don't know, go out smoking or cut down drinking or uh, eat more healthily or take more exercise or use the car less or recycle more. And if you ask them about whether those things are important and why they hold those things, they'll be able to give you detailed and, and sometimes quite passionate explanations of it. It doesn't necessarily accord with their behavior and we see it across all sorts of things whether it's kind of organ donation or uh you know uh, uh kind of behavior in, in in kind of health aspects and all sorts of other things um and it's it's really difficult i think to to believe that actually our attitudes and our behaviors don't really accord as much as we think and that actually sometimes perhaps that arrow uh, may go the other way that how we behave every day Our attitudes then align behind that, uh, and and act to justify that behavior, uh, when we're asked about it in future. So. The Gorotse and Davis review of all sorts of things, as I kind of implemented, uh, implied before, uh, you know, it doesn't, I don't think it, it doesn't specifically talk about growth mindset, but it talks about a great number of things. So it's not uncommon to hear about schools worried about students' aspirations and trying to raise aspirations. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I think it is a bit surprising. It's a bit of an eye-opener for teachers to, to read and discover that actually, you know, the evidence base behind this isn't really very strong at all. And I think particularly when you combine it, uh, for instance, on the the EF toolkit, looking at aspiration interventions, you know, an average effect of plus zero months. You know, it's it it. I think that's one of the things that that is. I, I suppose as a scientist, really, is is just the, what's wonderful about science is that sometimes it's really counterintuitive, um, but it, it leads us to to kind of question things that we all kind of take for granted. And I I, I think perhaps some of the the pursuit of mindsets and aspirations and attitudes uh, has kind of dominated kind of some aspects of education. Uh, and I await I, I one day <laughs> when perhaps the, the scales fall from the
0: eyes and, and we start to see that actually, you know, it's not it's not really that simple. <laughs> That's fantastic. And the kind of last main question for me before I hand it over to you for some of your recommendations is, Especially now kind of looking back, you're on kind of a sabbatical from teaching and you've done a lot more reading than you, you've had chance to do when when you're obviously a full-time teacher. Are there any things that you wished you'd known when you first started teaching that you do know now, Nick? Uh,
1: yes, I mean, all of it. Uh, <laughs> you know, pretty much our entire discussion. I think one of the reasons that uh, I started reading... Uh, Obviously, you know, with a background in psychology, um, I think it was, it was kind of a weird moment when I started to realize that actually, because some of this research I was reading wasn't just this kind of abstract, uh, kind of academic exercise, some kind of wishful throwback to my, my previous existence prior to coming into teaching. Um, but actually there were things in there that meant I should do things differently. Um, and then there were also so many open questions where we just had so little good, robust, uh, sort of, you know, evidence about what we should do. Um, so, I mean, it's it's extremely difficult to say what's, what's you know, what's something I, I wished I'd, I, you know, known at the beginning of my career um, that, I, that I, you know, know now. Um, I think I knew quite a lot of things. I mean, you know, in terms of that sceptical uh, outlook uh, and obviously I started to read the uh, the research. I think really kind of, really connecting the research to to practice and really thinking, well, what would this mean doing differently in my classroom? Um, You know, what would that look like? Uh, To go back to my whole thing about attitudes and behaviours. You know, I think it's when uh, my behaviour changed as a result of some of the things I was reading. What I was doing in the classroom subtly, uh, you know, uh, but but incrementally, I think, started to, to shift as a consequence of both the psychology and the educational research that I was looking at. So, I don't know. I don't think you can, I don't think that kind of process can be transformational. I think I had to go through that process and I think incrementally had to start trying to connect those ideas to practice as I became more familiar with them. I'm not sure that you can teleport knowledge back to an earlier stage in your career.
0: Got it. Well, that kind of leads us nicely then on on to to the final bit, which is kind of handing over to you, Nick, for for recommendations. Now you can take this however you want. I, I normally allow guests to to suggest three websites or blog posts they would direct listeners to. Gosh, well I mean, you know, and again this is a kid in a sweet shop, isn't it? <laughs> there are lots of things that you could potentially do. If I try
1: to limit myself perhaps two to three, I think yeah, sure. is fair. Uh, there are there are some great reviews uh on on blogs uh, about kind of the various books that uh, you you might read. But I mean three websites I suppose uh I would say would be worth going back to uh, uh, again and again as a, as a practicing teacher. One of the things that I've been really impressed with is that the kind of the quality of the articles, uh, on American Educator. Um, this is run by the, uh, American, American Federation of Teachers Union. And it's, uh, they're, they're written for teachers, but they're often written by, uh, you know, academics, uh, both in psychology and across education, uh, and what I really like about the best of those articles is that they're very classroom facing uh, and they're written without the kind of technical jargon that you'd expect in an academic journal article they're, they're, they're written for intelligent lay people. Um, so I would recommend as one of my websites, which is a bit cheeky, I guess. The, the whole of American
0: education. <laughs> no, that's I, fine. That's it,
1: fine. It, I'm, I'm not saying that every single article is is, is you know, worth reading. i certainly I haven't, um, but there are some great articles in there, and I suppose that would lead me a little bit to the second one because I mean another uh, blog. I suppose I would uh, certainly recommend, uh, and again from from the background of, of kind of being a, a psychology kind of teacher interested in uh, in, in education um, would be Dan Willingham's blog. Um, Dan Willingham has written, I, I don't know how many American educator articles, but obviously he writes articles for other things as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, there's just such great resource there. And um, many of the questions that you've asked me today, um, talking about, you know, praise, um, some sort of motivation, uh, whether it's about, uh, the, the kind of, the, uh, sort of you know, the the way kids think about information and and the way we process it, um, but I mean it, it really is such a, a broad base of topics. But but from uh, from a research point of view, and I think again what's really good about uh, Damingham's blog and many of the articles he writes is that uh, they're written in a really um, uh, a, a really great way for it, sort of an intelligent lay person who, who doesn't know the research, doesn't know the jargon uh, to quickly get into the kind of the crux of the, of the ideas. And I don't think it pretends there are easy answers for a lot of these things uh, that they genuinely try to reflect the the the, the, the argument and the, the differences of opinion uh, where they exist but also tries to point towards where there's more of a consensus and certainly uh, in my own writings you know I mean uh, that's the kind of that's the kind of bar I, I, I've always tried to approach in terms of writing about uh, both, both psychology and educational research and again I suppose again on a kind of research point of view another uh, great set of resources uh, that I would recommend would be um, some of the videos and some of the uh, briefings and resources on the research ed website um, you know there are some great video clips uh, you know, I think one of the frustrating things if you've never been to a research ed conference is when you look at the uh, the, the kind of the conference plan for the day, and you realise that going to this talk, which you really want to go to, miss <laughs> this talk and this talk and this talk. Well, some of them have, have been captured. Uh, I know Alex Weatherall does an enormous job trying to kind of edit these things and eventually putting them onto the, the website. Um, but there are some great talks there, uh, and again, you know, sometimes that's has got a nice change of pace. There are articles and links and all sorts of other things there. Um, but be able to kind of access great talks at your convenience in the comfort of your own home, I think is a really, really useful resource uh, for anyone.
0: That's super. What, what an excellent uh, set of choices they are, Nick. And I will link to those uh, in the show notes, as well as linking to all the papers that you've discussed as well. Um, well, we've we've come to the end, and I just want to firstly thank you for your for your time, Nick. You've been very generous with it this evening. I, I know we've overrun, so I really really appreciate that. And just secondly, thank you for sharing um, all your thoughts with us. It's it's been a genuinely fascinating perspective to have the kind of psychological perspective, I guess, on some of these things, and and to know that it's it's always good to have non-maths guests on there to give a broader perspective and just just hearing you talk about mindset and and motivation and differentiation and misconceptions it's been it's been absolutely fascinating so a massive 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 thank you uh to you nick and yeah i really really appreciate your time
1: well you're very welcome craig and I, i hope your listeners uh enjoy it
0: as well So, there you have it. There was my interview with Nick Rose. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. I flipping love that conversation. Now, for this takeaway, I was going to talk about misconceptions, but then I always talk about misconceptions. But I have been thinking lots about this, this cognitive conflict, and it's a flipping tricky one, right? Because... The evidence on it is really mixed, and I've cited some of this on on my research page, mrbarkmaths.com forward slash teachers forward slash research. It's not clear cut that creating cognitive conflict is definitely an effective way to help students overcome misconceptions. And as Nick pointed out, we may never overcome these misconceptions, and we may always be fighting against our natural instincts. So I'm still in two minds what the best thing to do is. Part of me thinks, do we just teach kids the correct procedures all the time? And I know from my interview with Danny Quinn, that's what she favours. But part of me also thinks we need to confront these misconceptions head on. And if if cognitive conflict is an effective way of showing students that those misconceptions are wrong, then maybe it's something we need to do. But, But I'm also convinced, as I tried to articulate with Nick, that students need to appreciate that there is a conflict. If they cannot understand the subtleties of it, if they cannot understand why what you're demonstrating or what they're discovering is actually wrong, then it's gonna be a bit of a flipping waste of time. And even worse than that, it may even reinforce the misconception. So the jury's still out on that one. But what I did want to focus on on this takeaway is is mindset and, and motivation in general, really, because as I said in my introduction, that's not something we've really covered on this on this series of podcasts. And it was amazing to speak to Nick about it. I'll be honest with you, uh, when I brought up the topic of mindset, I I imagined and predicted Nick was going to say, "Well, there's no scientific validity in that. It's just like learning stars. It's just like brain gym. Forget it. It's all a myth." But he didn't, and I think that. My take on it, anyway, is that is that Carol Dweck's work has kind of been taken a little bit out of context and 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 used not in the way it was intended in schools. And, and Nick made the point that some of the interventions that Dweck talks about that are successful are subtle ones. And I'll tell you what: the way mindset is used in school, if it's described as anything, it's not described as subtle. I mean, I remember when it came into a school that I was visiting, and indeed a school that I, I worked in for a while as well. Flipping heck, There were posters all over the wall. You couldn't you couldn't walk for more than a meter without being confronted by flipping growth mindset. This is dead dead important. There was assemblies left, right, and, and, and center. But it's a difficult one. Um and a student, a year eleven of mine, summed it up beautifully. And um, when he came out of an assembly, he was straight into period one maths. And I said, "How was your How was your assembly?" And he went, "Oh God, it was one of them on growth mindset, sir." And I said, "Well, that's dead important, right? To have a growth mindset." And what he said to me has always stuck with me. He said, "It's quite hard to have a growth mindset, sir, when I keep doing crap in my tests." And I think that's it. And I, f- I think that's the key to it. We, I, I fear that there's a danger that w- we try and make our kids struggle and fail too much. And and. Throughout my kind of training and throughout my early days of teaching, and indeed even now, we're told that struggle and failure is a good thing. And, And of course it is. Of course kids need to struggle. Of course kids need to think hard. And of course kids need to be willing to make mistakes. But they also need to taste success. Because if you haven't tasted success, what is the flipping point? If you don't believe that you can be successful with some hard work, then why on earth would you bother? And that for me is the essence of a growth mindset. You've got to believe that you can be successful. And I think you can't believe you can be successful unless you've tasted some kind of success. If everything's always a struggle, then flipping out, why on earth would you bother? So this has led me to the belief that... Well, the mistake I used to make in my planning was I used to plan for motivation. I used to think, right, what activities can I put together that are going to motivate my students? And my logic was, if I can make activities motivational, students are going to put the effort in and motivation is going to lead directly to achievement. However, if you read the research on this, and again, I've I've cited um, a lot of it on my research page. The chain of causation doesn't necessarily run that way. It's not the case that motivation leads to achievement. However, the evidence is a lot stronger the other way around, that achievement and success leads to motivation. And there's lots of different studies on this. Um, Daniel Pink's Drive is a fascinating read um, all about this. And there's some others based um, in stricter educational um, contexts as well. So now, it sounds such an obvious thing, a plan for success not for motivation. Because if students can be successful, then they're hopefully going to be motivated. And that kickstarts this virtuous cycle, where then you're in achievement, leads to more motivation, leads to more achievement, and so on. And I believe it's the same with growth mindset. I don't think it's the case that a growth mindset directly leads to success. I think it's the other way around. I think success helps enable you to have a growth mindset because you've seen what you can achieve. You've seen what hard work can do. And then you're in that virtuous cycle where, all right, okay, now I've tasted success. Now things are getting a little bit hard, but I'm ready for that. I'm gonna work hard because I've seen what my hard work can do. So yeah, I just think there's a danger that if we try and focus too much on motivation or we try and focus too much on growth mindset without enabling kids to taste success, we could be in a bit of trouble. And how do we get kids to take that taste that success? Well, there's two factors for me. There's good quality instruction and there's careful planning of examples and questions and activities for kids to do. And that's easier said than done, but I think planning for success, not motivation, and planning for success and not focusing too much on growth mindset before kids have tasted that success, for me, that tends to make sense. Anyway, all that left for me to do is to once again thank my wonderful guest, Nick Rose. It's it's got my brain spinning as as talking to all my wonderful guests does. I'm so, so lucky to, to be able to do this. Um thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And a big, 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 big thank you to you to you, my loyal listeners. Um, viewing figures, or sorry, the listening figures are going up and up and up. And it's it's just great to hear that people are, are finding these these interviews useful and learning things from them because I'll tell you what it has transformed the way I approach teaching it's turned thinking on my head and I think it's just great to hear loads of different viewpoints and I'll tell you what I have got some phenomenal guests lined up for the future as well so please stick around as I say if you get chance drop us a little review um, on iTunes that'll be hugely appreciated and all that's left for me to do is to once again thank you for listening take care of yourselves and I will see you for another podcast interview in the near future bye for now